With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, January 24th, 2016. So I have been told we are foregoing the typical introductory uh, just to get right to the book. This is Harriet A. Washington, Medical Apartheid, our 10th study session. We are picking up on Chapter 11, The Children's Crusade Research Targets Young African Americans. Uh, I will say once again, this is phenomenal, phenomenal illustration of why it is critically important if you are a black parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, if you, you know, have access to black children that you allege to care about, you got to talk to them about racism, white supremacy, because they are not safe. Racists do not care. They are coming after you. If you have a little bit of melanin, melanin from the time you have been conceived, uh, well beyond the grave, which this book documents in painstaking detail. Again, we're in chapter 11, the subsection parental consent. We will get started. This is Harriet A. Washington's just exemplary counter-racist production, Medical Apartheid, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Parental consent. Informed consent is a special concern for African-American children. Children are required to give assent for some experiments, which is simply a verbal agreement, but we have seen that children such as the six-year-old fenfluorine subjects will give assent in exchange for a toy. They simply cannot be expected to make good judgments about their health. Certainly, children cannot give informed consent because they cannot understand the medical procedures or weigh the risks and benefits of participating in medical research. Therefore, researchers substitute parental consent 
which is spoken of as the ne plus ultra of subject protection. But as we saw in the fenfluramine experiments, obtaining parental consent opens a child to experimentation, but does not always protect him. The first stumbling block to parental permission is legal. Researchers and legislators assume that parents can give consent for their child to join a research study. But as Leonard Glantz points out, the legal authority of parents or guardians to volunteer their children to participate as research subjects is unclear. In the case of non-therapeutic and risk-laden experiments, such as the fenfluramine and XYY studies, parental permission is ethically questionable as well. Although we expect parents to act in the best interests of their sick or well child, recent history teaches us that they often cannot or will not do so. Parents have, for example, agreed to fenfluramine administration and to XYY tests during which their children's blood was drawn by unqualified undergraduate students, exposing the child to the risk of infection. Such injudicious parental consent is garnered because parents are inadequately educated about research studies. To give just one example, a 2004 study of children with leukemia conducted at six U.S. children's hospitals showed that parents who consent to their sick child's participation in medical research often misunderstand the term randomization, which means that children are randomly assigned to receive either the standard treatment or the unproven experimental one being tested. A computer, not their doctor, decides which child will receive which drug. But parents tend not to understand this. Parents who do understand randomization are less likely to give consent. But even well-informed parents do not always fulfill our expectation that they will act in the best interests of the child. Parents may be at the mercy of conflicting motives, especially if a child's illness is causing stress and disruption for the rest of the family. Also, poor parents may find financial incentives for study participation too tempting to resist, even if those incentives consist only of free care for a sick child in a research program. The psychological stress of caring for a sick or dying child may cause parents to grasp at quixotic research straws, as baby Faye's parents did. She was born on October 14, 1984, with hypoplastic left heart syndrome a fatally undeveloped heart. Leonard L. Bailey, M.D., chief of surgery at Loma Linda University, convinced her young, unmarried, poor white parents to allow him to implant the heart of a baboon in their 12-day-old infant, although no one had ever survived a cross-species organ transplant. Unsurprisingly, baby Faye died a few weeks later. A 1992 study suggests that parental consent to medical research is inauspicious for a child, partly because the parents who volunteer their children for research are less well-educated, more likely to have substance abuse or other mental health problems, and possess lower self-esteem and less confidence than those who withhold permission. In short, the parents who consent are those least likely to make a good decision about study participation. Perhaps Baltimore's Kennedy Krieger Institute, KKI, best exemplified the dubious protections of parental consent, which it was careful to elicit when it began its repair and maintenance study in the mid-1990s, 
Researchers approached black families in 108 units of decrepit housing encrusted with crumbling, peeling lead paint. Lead paint is a notorious cause of acute illness and chronic mental retardation in young children, who inhale the lead borne on the air and nibble the peeling paint chips, drawn by the appealing sweet taste of the lead. That same sweet taste led Romans to infuse their wine with lead, courting mental devastation, which some historians believe hastened their civilization's decline. Today, it is poor children in crumbling inner-city housing who suffer most from lead. Fortunately, we know how to protect children by banning the use of lead paint and by offering lead abatement programs. But the agenda of the KKI scientists did not include removing children from lead exposure, because they plan to use these children to evaluate new, cheaper lead abatement techniques of unknown efficacy in old homes with peeling paint. Because scientists wish to explore cheaper ways of eliminating the lead threat in the future, they purposely arranged with landlords to have children inhabit lead-tainted housing so that they could monitor changes in the children's lead levels as well as the brain and developmental damage that resulted from different kinds of lead abatement programs. Scientists offered parents of children in these lead-laden homes incentives such as $15 payments to cooperate with the study without divulging that it placed their children at risk of lead exposure. The literature given the parents implied that the study was protecting their children from lead damage and promised to inform parents of any hazards. KKI researchers simultaneously encouraged landlords of approximately 125 tainted housing units to rent to families with young children by paying for the lead abatement if the landlords rented to such families they met with chilling success. When the KKI drew blood from one-year-old Erica Grimes on April 9, 1993, for example, her reading was 9 micrograms per deciliter, which is a normal reading according to CDC guidelines. The KKI identified lead-imbued hot spots in the home but did not tell Erica's parents. When Erica was retested on September 15, 1994, her blood lead reading was 32 micrograms per deciliter, which CDC charts label a highly elevated reading. The KKI is affiliated with the prestigious Johns Hopkins University, whose IRB approved the protocol. On August 16, 2001, Maryland's top appellate court ruled against the researchers, drawing a parallel to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Judge J. Caffel noted, It can be argued that the researchers intended that the children be the canaries in the mines. His decision noted, The RIB was willing to aid researchers in getting around federal regulations designed to protect children used as subjects in non-therapeutic research. An IRB's primary role is to assure the safety of human research subjects not help researchers avoid safety or health-related requirements. This is bad news, because the university, or corporation IRB, is considered the prime body charged with protecting the subjects of medical research. Each IRB is required by law to have at least five members, at least one of whom must be a non-scientist. One member must be non-affiliated with the university, 
and the board's composition must reflect the community's diversity. But as the fenfluramine study also suggests, these boards are failing to provide the needed protections. However, if parents have proven to be hobbled protectors in the research setting, institutional abuses such as the XYY experiments suggest that parents still are more desirable guardians than institutional bureaucrats and are far better protectors than no guardian at all. Unfortunately, a black child is more likely than a white one to have his parent completely removed from the informed consent equation. Black children are far more likely than whites to be institutionalized, in which case the parents are often unable to consent freely or are not consulted at all. Black children throng juvenile detention centers in at least twice their proportion in the population. Their sheer numbers place them at a special risk of being used for research studies there. Nationally, minority group members, especially blacks, represent 34% of children, but they constitute 67% of those committed to public facilities. In New York, blacks make up 41% of children, but 87% of those placed in public juvenile justice facilities. Today, one in 64 white boys are taken into custody before their eighth birthday, compared with one in 13 African-American boys. According to a 1999 National Juvenile Justice report, black children are more likely to be incarcerated, not because their behavior is worse, but because of biased handling. Their cases are processed differently from those of whites from the very inception of a problem. Sociologists argue that these orphaning factors combine with the condemnation of blacks as indifferent parents to ensure that the parental consent of African Americans is held in scant regard. For example, Baltimore's 85% black XYY studies sought permission only from some 15-year-old subjects themselves. Perhaps the most infamous example of such parental bypass is the case of Bonner versus Moran. In 1941, the aunt of 15-year-old John Bonner, a colored boy residing in Washington City, took him to the charity clinic of Episcopal Hospital, where her daughter Clara, John's cousin, was being treated for extensive burns. Clara's plastic surgeon, Dr. Robert Moran, said that she needed skin grafts, and the doctor and the aunt appealed to John, a junior high school student, to provide some of his own skin. No one asked permission of John's mother, who was sick at home. In fact, she had no idea that John had been taken to the clinic. This surgical attempt at an experimental skin graft was no small matter. John was hospitalized while the plastic surgeon cut a tube of his flesh from his armpit to his waist, then attached the tube to his cousin's side. But the large area of skin failed to take, and John himself needed several blood transfusions and two months' hospitalization. He emerged permanently and extensively scarred. When John's mother recovered, she sued Moran for battery, the legal consequence of non-consensual surgery. But the court exonerated him on the grounds that Bonner was a mature minor whose consent was legally binding. However, a federal appellate court reversed the ruling, noting that the surgery had not been for John's benefit. 
By his own testimony, it clearly appears that he, the physician, failed to explain, even to the infant, the nature or extent of the proposed first operation. Mrs. Bonner and the hospital eventually reached a settlement for damages. Infants and very young children are even more vulnerable. Not only can they not resist, they cannot even tell what is being done to them. In a 1925 Journal of the American Medical Association article, Dr. M. Hines Roberts made no mention of consulting parents or guardians when he wrote of subjecting 423 hospitalized Negro newborns in Atlanta, both sick and normal, to risky, painful spinal taps in order to study how such tests could cause injuries, trauma produced by the needle at the site of puncture. The taps introduced blood into the spinal fluid of some infants and exposed them all to the risks of infections such as meningitis, as well as motor injury, paralysis, and even death. In a 1956 nutrition study, black infants were covertly deprived of the essential nutrient linoleic acid, essential because, as the researchers already knew, the body cannot survive without it. In the late 1980s, many states, including New York, funded research initiatives that tested newborns for HIV infection without their mother's knowledge, then withheld the knowledge of their HIV status. 68% of HIV-positive infants were African-American. The infants suffered irreparable, unnecessary harm because life-saving treatment was not instituted. The mothers had no idea that their newborns, and they themselves, were HIV-positive. The mothers were victimized because they remained unaware of their own HIV-positive status, and thus could not seek treatment. It was the Tuskegee experiment all over again, says Nettie Meyerson, the New York Assemblywoman who shepherded legislation that would mandate HIV testing and reporting for newborns in New York State. However, in 2004, news emerged of another New York City study. In this case, HIV-positive children in foster care were given high doses of experimental, risky, antiretroviral drugs without their parents' knowledge or permission. This study is discussed in detail in Chapter 13. Even an NIH physician, Dr. Lema Fananapazir, bypassed parents when he implanted pacemakers in 55 black children to test a new treatment. The children had been diagnosed with a benign inherited condition that thickens the heart, and Fananapazir wished to see whether the pacemakers would lessen the thickening. But he never articulated a logical therapeutic motive, and the pacemakers did not improve the children's health, which was not threatened by their condition. Instead, the implantation exposed them to surgical risks of pain, infection, and heart damage. Fananapazir's surgeries puzzled his cardiologist colleagues, one of whom dismissed the study by saying, there's a lot of witchcraft here. Another type of research with children, experimental vaccines, has gained national notoriety. Today, highly publicized theories link vaccination to everything from autism to sudden death, and even parents who adhere to the vaccination schedules often do so uneasily. Although vaccine skeptics come in every color, 
recent revelations have sown a deeper-seated uneasiness among African Americans. Between 1987 and 1991, U.S. researchers administered as much as 500 times the approved dosage of the experimental Edmonton Zagreb EZ measles vaccine to African American and Hispanic babies in black neighborhoods of Los Angeles. The parents of these children did not know mammoth overdoses were being administered, nor that the vaccine was experimental. They also did not know that the vaccine had earlier been given to 2,000 Haitian children in Cité Soleil, the most desperately impoverished area of Port-au-Prince, with disastrous results. Easy vaccinated children, all poor, began to sicken and die by the hundreds there and throughout countries in the Third World, including Senegal, Mexico, and Guinea-Bissau. Horrified by the disastrously high death rates, World Health Organization officials abandoned their plans to administer 250 million easy doses throughout developing countries. But after these experimental deaths, the vaccine was administered to black and Hispanic Los Angeles children. Such outrages have prompted African-American groups to condemn vaccination. Dr. Abdul Alim Mohammed, Nation of Islam Minister of Health, recommended a moratorium on immunizations for all African-American members of the Muslim faith. However, shunning vaccines is itself dangerous. The vaccine debate encapsulates more than a scientific disagreement. It also reflects the lingering iatrophobia from the exploitative abuse of African-American children. This abuse has had a chilling effect on life-saving research, because parents are withholding their permission from positive as well as abusive research. History has shown them how difficult it is to distinguish between the two. African-American children are still being harmed not only by abusive experimentation, but also by the fear of research that follows in its wake. For example, the African-American infant mortality rate is twice that of whites, and Congress has charged the NIH with much-needed research to investigate the reasons for this carnage. However, two years into the five-year project, the National Institutes of Health canceled the study. It gave no official explanation, although rumors flew that the project director had engaged in ethics violations in wangling support for the study. The surrounding community, hearing reports of research fraud, feared that their children would be harmed if they enrolled. The real victims of this abortive study are the millions of black infants who will die awaiting research into their mortality, while a plethora of studies explore supposed genetic links between violence and black children. Part 3. Race, Technology, and Medicine Chapter 12. Genetic Perdition the Rise of Molecular Bias In the age of the technological fix, this country is heading for genetic and behavioral control of society. Who will exercise the control? Who will make the decisions about which genes are defective and which behavior abnormal? Who will make the decisions about the genetic worth of prospective human beings? Jonathan Beckwith, 1974 When I went to prison... The concern and worry literally broke my mother's heart. 
she suffered a series of heart attacks and strokes and died in 1997. She knew I was innocent because I had been at home with my parents when the crime occurred. And over the years, things just wore her down. When you are in prison, if you are close to your family, your whole family is in prison. The burden of guilt is common coin in prison. But Calvin Johnson knows the crushing agony of innocence. The 25-year-old Atlanta resident had a bright future, a close-knit family, many friends, and a wedding date when he was convicted of raping a white woman in 1983. He had never seen his victim before, but he was convicted, although pubic hairs recovered from her body did not match his. They did come from an African-American man, and that, apparently, was enough. I still had faith in the system. I believed it would be just a matter of time before officials realized that they had made a mistake. I was really kind of naive. I didn't believe that I would be sentenced or convicted of the crimes. Although the woman identified photographs of someone else as her assailant, and although he did not match key elements of her description, the actual rapist had only a mustache and Johnson wore a full beard, Johnson was convicted by an all-white jury. For 17 years, Johnson fought to survive in the hardest work camp in the state of Georgia. I worked in snake-infested swamp waters up to my knees. He also had to stave off assailants. When you're in prison for a sex offense, if you're not physically strong, the guys around you, they'll try to pick at you. So I lifted weights and became a pretty good size. People left me alone. Johnson lost his youth, his fiancée, and his naivete. But, he says, I always believed that God would save me. Faith in God sustained his spirit. And in 1986, Johnson finally found physical deliverance in DNA, which proved him innocent. He was 42 years old. Nearly all human cells contain genes, which, in turn, contain deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, the molecule that encodes life itself. DNA's genetic code is composed of building blocks called nucleotides, and this code dictates and directs the development of a fertilized egg through processes of protein manufacture so complex that they remain incompletely understood. DNA is passed from parents to children, and it determines or influences many traits, from your eye color to many disease propensities. There is DNA in nearly all your cells, but there are several types of DNA, and less than 1% codes for differing traits such as eye color, height, or disease susceptibility. Unless you are an identical twin or the product of another such multiple birth, your DNA is unique. No one else on the planet has your exact genetic code, although humans share a great many genetic similarities. Today, DNA fingerprinting technology enables scientists to identify distinctive genetic patterns. In Johnson's case, the DNA samples from his body ultimately proved that the pubic hairs and other biological evidence left behind by the rapist were not his. At least three types of DNA fingerprinting are in use. But despite the terminology, none is as accurate an identification method as matching a fingerprint. 
The most popular method at the time of Johnson's conviction, Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism, or RFLP analysis, compares the DNA of two or more individuals, which varies by only 0.1%. That's one difference in a thousand, useful for establishing paternity or guilt. A newer form of DNA comparison utilizing single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNP, has rapidly outstripped RFLP. Anyone who doubts that genetic technology can be an important blessing for African Americans should consider its pivotal role in freeing black men such as Calvin Johnson. Johnson was freed by the Innocence Project, the brainchild of OJ Dream Team members Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, lawyers at the Cardozo School of Law in New York. So far, DNA evidence has helped them and the 15 to 20 similar projects they have inspired to exonerate more than 328 inmates, including Kirk Bloodsworth and Earl Washington, Jr., who were sentenced to die in Maryland and Virginia, respectively. These are mostly African-American men convicted of raping white women, says Neufeld. Only 10% of reported sex assaults are allegations of white women attacked by black men. Yet most, 54%, of all convictions proven to be unjust involve African-American men wrongfully convicted of assaulting white women. This is a crime that seems associated with many wrong convictions. So many men have been freed by DNA testing that laws ensuring prisoners' rights to DNA appeals have been passed in some states, including California, New York, and Illinois. Illinois declared a moratorium on capital punishment after an embarrassing string of investigations uncovered many innocent prisoners in its penal institutions. However, deployment of DNA technology is no panacea. Relatively few inmates can afford the requisite $5,000, and the backlash triggered by the Illinois embarrassment was swift. Some cities, such as Lansing, Michigan, passed laws restricting the use of DNA evidence in inmate appeals. Then again, some criminals leave no testable materials behind. And according to Barry Sheck, even when biological evidence exists, 70% of the time it is allowed to deteriorate, is lost, or is discarded during the decades an innocent person languishes in jail. Human error sometimes sabotages genetic wisdom, as when courts ignore compelling DNA evidence. Scientists and technicians in genetic laboratories have made errors and have even falsified DNA test results. For example, Chicago laboratory worker Pamela Fisher lied or made errors that bolstered at least one erroneous conviction, according to forensic experts who reviewed her testimony before the release of inmate John Willis. A study by University of Michigan law professor Samuel R. Gross determined that tens of thousands of innocent people are trapped in jail. If we reviewed all prison sentences with the same level of care that we devote to death sentences, there would have been more than 28,500 non-death row exonerations in the past 15 years, rather than the 255 that have in fact occurred. Even for freed men such as Johnson, justice remains elusive, 
How do you compensate a man for consigning him to spend his youth in hell? For the loss of his family, friends, income, and good name? States, such as California, offer a non-negotiable settlement of $100 for each day of unjust imprisonment. But two-thirds of those freed by DNA evidence get nothing. And money means nothing to some, such as Frank Lee Smith, a Fort Lauderdale man exonerated by DNA evidence nearly 15 years after he was sent to death row, and 11 months after he died there of cancer. Clearly, DNA testing is no substitute for justice. In fact, according to experts such as Neufeld, the real significance is not that DNA got them out, but that DNA provides a window into the criminal justice system to see what went wrong with the system to let so many innocent people be convicted. But DNA evidence has powerful uses beyond liberating the innocent. Shades of Gattaca The film Gattaca held a not-too-distant mirror up to a genetic dystopia in which human decisions and discretion are removed from all-encompassing judgments about men's worth. In this film, only one's DNA, recognized and assessed by machines, determines one's fate, leaving character, personality, drive, and intent all sublimated to the tyranny of the gene. The biometric dystopia of Gattaca doesn't exist yet, and perhaps it never will. But developments over the past few years evoke an unmistakable glimmer of recognition. The FBI, Secret Service, IRS, Social Security Administration, Census Bureau, and Department of Veterans Affairs all maintain extensive collections of genetic data. Since May 1998, sex offenders have been required to surrender DNA samples to federal databases. And today, every state maintains its own DNA database that contains the DNA profiles of felons and of others, including people merely suspected of crimes or even of innocent people rounded up in DNA sweeps. The samples of 450,000 convicts are stored with identifiers, such as the person's name, description, criminal record, social security number, and image. The government has also sponsored the creation of national databases, such as the FBI's Combined DNA Index System, CODIS, which stores DNA samples, most without identifying information. CODIS went online in 1998 with samples from 8,000 convicted child molesters, and by 2001, it contained the profiles of 1.5 million felons. In 2002, the U.S. Attorney General ordered the FBI to expand CODIS to 50 million profiles. And by 2004, CODIS stored 2.6 million samples containing the DNA of people convicted of almost any crime. In October 2005, the Senate Judiciary Committee approved a law, which was pending when this book went to print, to force anyone who was merely detained by federal authorities to provide DNA. And in August 2006, the database contained more than 3.5 million samples. The FBI predicts that CODIS will accommodate 50 million samples in the near future. Some scientists warn 
that the very DNA evidence and technology that has freed hundreds of African-American men like Johnson may soon be wielded by police to criminalize and convict black and Hispanic men. From California to London, DNA data banking has allowed the collection of genetic evidence for convicted felons on the premise that those who have been convicted have sacrificed some of their rights to privacy. But Troy Duster, a professor of sociology at Berkeley and author of Backdoor to Eugenics, warned in 2001, the same technology that will exculpate people today is also being used to put people who have merely been stopped by the police into genetic databases. He is correct. In 2000, Miami police seeking a violent criminal described vaguely as black or Hispanic stopped 2,300 black and Hispanic men on the street and quickly took a buckle swab from each, swabbing the interior of each man's cheek. The police now had samples of their DNA, accompanied by identifying information, suspect profiles, and each man was free to go for the time being. The samples were tested against DNA left by the rapist at the scene, but none of these men's DNA matched that of the putative assailant. Therefore, all these men have demonstrated their innocence, but police have stored their genetic data in a database to be tapped when they next seek a perp. This database of innocent black and Hispanic men constitutes a collective presumption of guilt. When weighing the ethical and scientific unacceptability of this tactic, it is important to realize that 1. The term DNA fingerprinting is a misnomer. The genetic profile is not as specific as a fingerprint and cannot provide a unique identifier. 2. The description of a black or a Hispanic suspect is so vague that it yields a racial dragnet, not a description of a suspect. And 3. Some rare differences that allow one to differentiate individuals based upon a genetic profile become less rare when one looks only within ethnic or kinship groups. DNA profiling has been questionably imposed upon white men too, but with important differences. For example, the ACLU of Massachusetts denounced DNA testing as a serious intrusion on personal privacy when police in Truro, Massachusetts, used it in investigating the 2002 killing of white fashion writer Krista Worthington. The ACLU also cited the technology's failures in sites such as Baton Rouge and Virginia when DNA samples were coerced from up to 800 area men, most of whom were white, in contrast to the thousands taken from black and Hispanic men. The ACLU also argued that the 7,000 forensic DNA samples tested in sweeps have resulted in only one arrest, making DNA sweeps a very expensive and inefficient way of targeting suspects. This is partly because guilty suspects typically refuse to give a sample, even under considerable pressure. It is the innocent who allow themselves to be cajoled or bullied into a buckle swab. A DNA sweep targeting all Caucasian men, in which police coerce men into supplying DNA to eliminate themselves as suspects, then store it for use the next time they seek a criminal, would be as ethically repugnant as a similar sweep of black men.
However, in Truro, the donors were not exclusively white and were not targeted on the basis of skin color, so racial bias was not a factor. Truro police asked all local men over 18 years old to provide samples and recorded their various races. What's more, the police agreed to destroy the Truro samples after collection. Unlike sites in Miami and Washington, D.C., where the police sought DNA only from men of color, the Truro sweep was still a privacy violation. Many white men felt pressured to give samples and complained that the demand for a DNA sample violated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure. Moreover, a black man was arrested for Worthington's murder in April 2005, under troubling circumstances. According to the Boston Herald, this suspect, who had an extensive criminal history of violent crimes against women, had given the police permission to take his DNA in April 2002, but police declined to do so until March 2004. During the three years it took them to take, analyze, and act on his DNA analysis, the DNA dragnet of Truro's 800 adult men was completed. Some now complain that their privacy was invaded for no reason by DNA testing, because police failed to investigate an obviously promising suspect or even to analyze his DNA sample. California, too, is forcibly taking DNA samples from people presumed innocent, people who have been arrested but not tried and convicted. Defenders of the practice often say that taking and storing such samples is no more intrusive than the common practice of taking a suspect's fingerprints. It is true that fingerprints are taken of arrested persons without too much protest that the innocent are being stigmatized. But again, DNA markers are not fingerprints. They are less specific and far more invasive. In practice, a fingerprint is not a forensically infallible means of identification, but it verifies a person's identity with enough accuracy to satisfy the legal system. However, one's DNA contains intimate information not only about one's identity, but also about one's health, including one's future risks of becoming prematurely senile or developing Huntington's disease or a hard-to-cure cancer. Besides harboring the markers for 4,000 disease risks, DNA also contains information about the health and identity of one's forebears and descendants. With a sample of your DNA, a person can predict certain disease and disorder probabilities for you and for your children. George Annis, a law professor and bioethicist at Boston University, has referred to one's DNA profile as a future-coded diary, and with the completion of the Human Genome Project, the code has essentially been broken. Therefore, taking the fingerprints of an arrestee and taking a sample of his DNA are not comparable acts. The latter is far more intrusive and revealing, but far less likely to yield a uniquely definitive identification. In the United States, Laws prevent the federal government from retaining DNA samples of the innocent. But the states are doing just this. In 1994, police took samples from 160 black men in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
many of whom complained that they had been coerced by police officers who ignored their alibis and threatened to prosecute them if they refused to submit. San Diego police similarly pressured 800 black men in order to catch a serial killer described only as dark-skinned. Black Ann Arbor residents complained that the police tactics bordered on harassment and abuse. But the men who were approached in Truro often cited subtler peer pressure and vague fears that police would scrutinize them more heavily if they refused to give a sample. However, Ann Arbor law enforcement officials denied that their investigation was discriminatory. They insisted that police were simply targeting individuals who met the description of the perpetrator. The Ann Arbor killer, along with several other men, refused to provide police with a DNA sample and was identified only after he was arrested for an unrelated crime. In mid-April 2001, Syracuse University's Lubin Center hosted a program on forensic genetic technologies. Moderated by television journalist Catherine Cryer and with a panel of experts that included NYU sociology professor Troy Duster and Howard Safer, the police commissioner of New York City under Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Safer's new career as a proponent of high technology security includes the promulgation of his view that police should soon be allowed to use brave new genetic technologies to stop people on the street, take a buckle swab with a portable device, run the database off a satellite, and use their portable computers to see whether they have a hit. Such on-the-spot DNA testing is not yet reality, but several biotechnology firms are endeavoring to perfect portable solutions that can allow cops to stop a person, obtain a quick DNA sample, and check it against a database in minutes. One such firm, located in San Diego, is called Nanogen, It utilizes single nucleotide polymerases, SNPs, small DNA fragments that are sites of genetic difference distinctive enough to identify a suspect. Nanogen can put SMPs on a microchip the size of a stamp, technology that scientists have taken to calling SNPs on chips. Or by analyzing and comparing small areas of DNA called short tandem repeats, or STRs, A police officer, armed with DNA from a buckle swab, can very speedily check 13 STRs within minutes. However, some critics argue that 13 STRs is too few for reliable identification. Police outfitted with portable computers will be able to access the DNA databanks to screen the profiles of thousands of men. The FBI Felons Database has samples from 8,000 unsolved crime scenes, and state law enforcement has accrued approximately 620,000 samples from lawbreakers, including those suspected or convicted of minor crimes. Every state now maintains genetic databases that are matched to genetic samples taken from crime scenes, such as blood traces, in order to facilitate finding the person who has committed the crime. Cryer echoed the sentiments of many present when she asked why being in the genetic database would be a problem for an innocent black man. If he is not guilty, what is the problem for a man in the database? He has nothing to worry about. But he does. 
multiple levels of bias feed the all-black and Hispanic databases. And lawsuits, such as the Pamela Fish case cited earlier, already have verified that DNA evidence is no more immune to fraudulent or incompetent manipulation than is other evidence. Then, too, there is the issue of collective stigmatization. If only men of color are in the database, only men of color become suspects, and only they can be convicted. Databases that exclude white men, the numerical majority group, will miss most criminals. As the American Criminal Law Review points out, optimal effectiveness, however, would require a universal DNA database that contains the DNA fingerprint of every citizen. Otherwise, potential matches would be missed. Although a universal DNA database would be more efficient than one based upon skin color, it is also ethically unacceptable because it would necessitate coercion. The DNA sweeps from Miami to London to Truro have met with varying levels of resistance and resentment and so cannot be described as voluntary. Will the novel DNA fingerprinting technology lead to the imprisonment of more African-American men than have been freed because of it? This technology's benevolent face has been seen most often, but it has another sinister visage. This dual nature holds true for almost every application of genetic science to African-American health and welfare. Historically, every boon appears to have been accompanied by a stigmatizing threat to health or freedom. For American blacks, genetics has always been wielded as a two-edged sword. Sickle Cell Misstep African Americans are no strangers to genetic innovation, but unfortunately, genetic therapy has long been sabotaged by racial myths and bad science. The agenda-driven nature of much genetic research with African Americans has rendered many blacks wary of all genetic science. One of the most infamous examples within recent memory has been the family of troubled genetic initiatives surrounding sickle cell disease. Chapter 6 described how, in 1910, cardiologists James B. Herrick, M.D., and Ernest E. Irons first identified the thin, elongated, sickle-shaped red blood cells of a desperately ill 20-year-old dental student from Grenada. A year later, a Virginia medical journal published a description of a 25-year-old black woman with similar symptoms. Soon, reports of African Americans with sickle cell anemia, a constellation of dire conditions ascribed to misshapen sickled red blood cells, began to flood medical journals. When people with the disorder are exposed to environmental insults, such as low oxygen environments, their red blood cells deform into a sickled shape and become adhesive, sabotaging the cell's ability to carry sufficient oxygen and causing them to block small blood vessels, including capillaries. These events trigger excruciatingly painful episodes, known as sickle cell crises. A sickle cell crisis can generate not merely anemia, but also bleeding ulcers, strokes, a heart attack, or the loss of limbs and tissues, depending upon the location of the compromised blood vessels. Thus, 
physicians often prefer the term sickle cell disease, pointing out that most of the sufferer's worst medical crises have little to do with anemia. By 1920, an erroneous belief had become firmly entrenched that sickle cell disease was a racial condition that struck only African Americans. However, it also affects people from Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, and West African regions, but not those from South Africa and East Asian regions. After the supposed post-war conquest of infectious disease via antibiotics, and after the discovery of DNA's double helical structure in 1951, genetics gained primacy as the preeminent mode of understanding and attacking disease. In 1949, sickle cell anemia became the very first molecular disease to be identified. Scientists learned that sickle cell anemia was the worst of several sickling cell disorders and that it struck one in every 400 African-American newborns. They also knew that sickle cell disease and a slew of closely related blood disorders called hemoglobinopathies struck not only blacks, but also persons of other races. For example, one such blood disease, thalassemia, affects people of Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, and African extraction. But sickle cell anemia's identity as a black disease was so firmly entrenched that blacks with thalassemia are still often misdiagnosed with sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is recessive. A person must carry two of the recessive genes for sickle cell disease to develop the illness. People with only one sickle cell gene are said to be heterozygotes, or carriers, who are essentially well. But if two heterozygotes for sickle cell disease marry, their offspring run a one-in-four chance of developing the disease. If a carrier marries a person without the gene, none of their children will develop sickle cell disease, but their children run a one-in-two chance of becoming carriers themselves. Carriers of sickle cell disease are sometimes referred to as having the sickle cell trait, but despite the connotation of illness that the word trait carries, they are well. Because of the potential for confusion, this chapter avoids the term sickle cell trait whenever possible. By the late 1960s, workplaces instituted genetic screening, ostensibly to protect vulnerable employees by avoiding their placement in work environments that could trigger illness, such as a sickle cell crisis the federal government supported initiatives that encouraged widespread genetic screening of sickle cell disease, and African Americans themselves pushed for many of these initiatives to test for and counsel people at risk for sickle cell disease. So there is no doubt that many of the projects were well-intentioned. However, some were not, and in many cases, good intentions paved the medical road to perdition. Sickle cell screening created huge problems, recalls Vernelia Randall, professor of law at Dayton University. Airlines, for example, said pilots with the trait couldn't fly. Why not if they were healthy? In 1968 and 1969, doctors at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, grew concerned that Army basic training was suddenly proving more than usually hazardous, even deadly. Within 11 months, 
four recruits had collapsed and died suddenly, all of them black. Even more alarming were the autopsy results, which showed the men's red blood cells were now sickle-shaped. The soldiers were black, and the high altitude of the boot camp, 4,060 feet, suggested that the deaths might have been due to sickle cell disease crises triggered by the low oxygen environment characteristic of high altitudes. But the New England Journal of Medicine report on the men's deaths noted that the sickled cells didn't necessarily mean that the men had sickle cell disease, because the misshapen cells could have been a consequence, not the cause, of their deaths. When the National Academy of Sciences studied the deaths, it could neither rule out sickle cell anemia nor prove that it had killed the men. But the U.S. Air Force Academy rushed to judgment, promptly issuing a directive barring the admission of all black sickle cell carriers, healthy people. Carriers were permanently grounded, were banned from co-piloting, and were reduced to ground jobs. It is worth noting that by banning black carriers from admission, the Academy was effecting a large-scale restoration of its long-standing, nakedly race-based ban on blacks entering the Academy. But now it could offer the rationale of protecting them. Strangely, scientists as well as laypersons confused well-sickle cell carriers with the homozygotes who had both genes for sickle cell disease, and therefore had the disease. However, this confusion was no accident. It resulted in profits for orthopharmaceutical company of McNeil Laboratories, the company that sold the so-called sickle cell screening test, which did not differentiate between the sickle cell trait and sickle cell disease. Ortho was promoting and distributing a test it called SickleDex that could not discriminate between sickle cell carriers and people with sickle cell disease. That is, SickleDex detected the presence of the gene, but not whether one or two genes existed. In order to market the test, employers, military hospitals, and the government extended to carriers the same advice and restrictions that applied to people genuinely ill with sickle cell anemia. Otherwise, these agencies would have had to admit that the test was of extremely limited therapeutic value because it could not tell a sick person from a well person. The National Institutes of Health, hospitals, and private organizations disseminated brochures and booklets equating carrier status with the disease, and millions of well black people were informed that they were ill and genetically tainted. Some were told that they had a life expectancy of 20 years. The very first sentence of the preamble of the National Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act, enacted in 1972 to foster sickle cell research, screening, counseling, and education, is untrue. Two million Americans suffer from sickle cell disease. Actually, two million people were healthy carriers, and fewer than 100,000 Americans suffered from sickle cell anemia. The erroneous claim coupled with its constantly reinforced perception of sickle cell disease as a black disorder, left Americans with the mistaken impression that a good portion, one in 12 of African Americans, suffered from sickle cell anemia. 
The perception of sickle cell heterozygosity as a disease state is an eloquent illustration of ethnocentrism. Because far from being unhealthy, this carrier status confers the distinct biological advantage of immunity to the deadliest strain of malaria. This helps sickle cell carriers and malarious areas to survive. At the 8th International Congress of Genetics in 1949, evolutionary biologist J.B.S. Haldane first proposed that people with one gene for sickle cell disease were more resistant to attacks by the sporozoa that cause malaria. In parts of Africa and other countries where malaria-carrying mosquitoes thrive, people who have one gene for sickle cell anemia and one gene for normal hemoglobin are not only healthier than people with sickle cell anemia, but also healthier than people without the trait, those with normal hemoglobin. Being a heterozygote for sickle cell anemia protects one from invasion by the deadly P. falciparum strain of malaria in several ways. A form of the malaria parasite, the plasmodium, infects the person's red blood cells, but in heterozygotes, the plasmodium causes only the infected red blood cells to sickle by making the cell environment more acidic. This increased acidity, in turn, makes the hemoglobin lose oxygen, which further escalates the sickling of the infected cells. However, the resulting lack of oxygen also depletes the infected cells of potassium, which kills the malaria parasites. Any surviving parasites are picked off by the person's immune system, and the sickled cells are taken out of circulation, destroyed, and eliminated from the body along with the parasites. The uninfected red blood cells do not sickle, and the person suffers neither from sickle cell disease nor from malaria. In malarious environments, sickle cell heterozygotes are 15% more likely to survive and to reproduce than their neighbors with normal hemoglobin. This is called the heterozygote advantage, and it helps to explain why the common denominator for groups carrying the sickle cell gene is not being black, but living in proximity to the malaria-bearing Anopheles mosquito. Other genetic diseases that also are thought to confer a heterozygote advantage include cystic fibrosis, the most common genetic disease among people of European descent, which protects against the fatal dehydration of cholera and typhoid. And scientists have suggested that heterozygotes for Tay-Sachs disease, which preferentially strikes Ashkenazi Jews, may enjoy increased protection against tuberculosis. Today, the United States sees only about 1,000 cases of malaria annually so that the heterozygote advantage is not terribly useful to a North American, except for travelers to malarious areas, and as an object lesson in the interplay among genetics, disease, and culture. African Americans were among those confused by the erroneous medical advice the government was dispensing. Many states mounted compulsory genetic screening programs, which many blacks welcomed, but which caused others, including genetic experts, to feel stigmatized. For example, James Bowman, M.D., an African-American professor of genetics at the University of Chicago, 
was the lone voice crying out in the genetic wilderness when he was invited to address a 1971 Black Panthers event. There, sickle cell screening was being conducted by community leaders who warned that anyone who tested positive could expect to live only 20 years longer. Bowman forcefully objected that the testing was unable to identify the genuinely ill and that, in any case, the clinical picture was far less dire. Despite Bowman's credentials and protests, the black and white organizers persisted in the erroneous testing and counseling. Seventeen states enacted sickle cell screening laws, often in response to requests from African Americans. But black Americans did not clamor for workplace screenings, which threatened privacy and raised questions that could create a genetic underclass of workers. In 1971, almost 900 diseases were known to be genetic, yet screening tests could identify the carriers of only 50 genetic diseases. However, screening for sickle cell disease was the genetic test performed most often by employers. By 1975, tens of thousands had been screened for Tay-Sachs and thalassemia, but half a million blacks had been screened for sickle cell disease. In the Name of Eugenics, A Social History of Genetics by Daniel Keflis, notes, No one argued seriously for the screening of every possible parent, but some did urge the screening of people from groups at comparatively high risk for particular genetic diseases, notably blacks. The National Institutes of Health's policies and publications focused exclusively on African Americans, solidifying sickle cell anemia in the American psyche as a black disease. Unfortunately, the government policies still confused the disease state with being a carrier. Screenings were performed en masse at a variety of sites in an assembly line fashion, with agenda-driven, inaccurate counseling. When screening revealed that a person carried the trait for sickle cell disease, that information was dumped upon her. She was informed she was sick, given a brochure that erroneously equated the disease with the trait, then often dismissed without further support or answers, except for the one piece of advice that was always dispensed, the inadvisability of marriage between two people with the trait, because they could produce children with sickle cell anemia. This was often the main informational point of the screening, to identify affected people so that they would know not to have children. Such advice led many African Americans to accuse genetic counselors and counseling programs of genocide, especially after 1973. That was the year amniocentesis allowed prenatal testing of the amniotic fluid, first for life-threatening disorders, then for genetic defects, and later for sickle cell anemia. This was also the year that Roe v. Wade gave American women access to legal abortion on demand. Genetic counselors, who had dispensed pointed advice along with diagnoses since the 1950s, were supposed merely to provide diagnosis and disease information, but they still practiced virtually unregulated and many recommended abortion on the basis of testing that could not discern the trait from the disease. For at-risk couples who conceived at that time, recalls Vernelia Randall, the advice was pregnancy termination. In 
Some viewed these as attempts to limit the fertility of blacks. Discrimination against sickle cell carriers had been slow to dissipate, lagging well behind scientific knowledge. The U.S. Air Force Academy's admission bar and grounding of heterozygous pilots, for example, was ended only in 1981 by a lawsuit. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade. In for another broadcast. First segment of Harriet A. Washington Medical Apartheid. All done. Uh, we will converse and then get to the second audio segment. We are <clears throat> still in chapter 12. Chapter 12. Uh, and we're going to be done. I think we'll have three more segments and we're out of here. The number to dial 641 715 Three six four zero. The number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. If you don't want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. That is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. Um, you click that. It will open a small window on your screen. Uh, you will see on the top line, it's a drop-down menu. Select the number I just gave, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code is 564 final line it will ask for a name uh, you can put in a real name a nickname you can press random keys whatever once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom uh, it will connect you to the live broadcast you should be able to hear us uh, it is the same procedure if you would like to participate you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six when you do that you will hear an audio prompt press the number one I will see your hand on the screen, and we will get you on the line. That's it. Uh, I will go ahead and get to the folks uh, who dialed in who have questions or commentary they would like to make. Uh, I'm just, uh, again, stunned. Uh, she just keeps rattling them off. This is like a uh, greatest hits from the context of white supremacy, Vernelia Randall. Uh, she has been a guest on the program four times uh, and is the author of Dying While Black, which is exact same subject that we're covering in this book as well as Daniel Kevlis uh, with the information uh, that she brought forward in chapter 12 we had him on to talk about his research on eugenics back in 2012 uh, who's who of the context of white supremacy referenced all throughout this book uh, the folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, feel free uh, lines should be open if you have comments you would like to share
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus. I was just trying to uh, just find my place because I took so many notes, uh, like copious, copious notes. Um, I agree with you. To me, just all the names that she is, um, like you said, rattling off, um, just really speaks to the genius of the format of this program and what it's all about. It just says that everything that, you, that you've been working towards with this um, program is going in the correct direction and always has been. So I'm really, I mean, even though this stuff is hard to read, I'm just really, really um, um, just not even surprised, but just blown away by the, the, the I'd say, the ancestral uh, direction that the show has been going in. Um, let me get to the, the book. Uh, I just wanted to start with a section on page 292. Uh, Dr. Randall, I mean, Dr. Washington wrote, the IRB was willing to aid researchers in getting around federal regulations designed to protect children used as subjects in non-therapeutic research. And IRB's, and, and IRB's primary role is to ensure the safety of human research subjects, not to help researchers avoid safety or health-related requirements. And um, I remember, I think it might have been, excuse me, the, on the last reading, I was just talking about, well, no, the other day we were talking about this, um, and I said that essentially white people create these organizations with the inherent understanding that they are practicing racism in all areas of people activity. And for me, that section just really speaks to just what I talked about then and the fact that, you know, white supremacist protection is no protection at all. It's just a ruse to get you to um, be fooled or lulled into complacency to allow them to further brutalize you on a subconscious level. You're not aware of what they're actually doing to you, which is basically what we're dealing with on a constant basis. Um, another section I wanted to read was on the following page, 293. Uh, she wrote, the, the sociologists argue that these orphaning factors combined with the condemnation of blacks as indifferent parents to ensure that the parental consent of African-Americans is held in scant regard. For example, Baltimore's 85% black XYY studies sought permission from only some 15-year-old subjects themselves. And, I mean, white supremacy is just nauseatingly sick because if you can look at a 15-year-old minor, which I would just call them a baby still, um, and consider that informed consent when that child has no concept of the fact that they're being used as a human guinea pig and the, the inherent um, bodily destruction, health destruction, and potentially loss of life for that child. Um, and it kind of speaks of, uh, I think uh, Dr. Umar talked about this, how um, eventually they're going to make pedophilia normal and that they're going to continue in, as, as they have been doing in different states, uh, lowering the age of consent. And that's exactly the direction I see this situation going with what she wrote about there and um, how this is continuing as far as um, the way society, the direction society is going in at this time. Um, another section was on 295. She wrote, even an NIH physician, Dr. LeMay, Fernando Pazir, bypassed parents when he implanted pacemakers in 55 black children to test a new treatment. The children have been diagnosed with a benign inherited condition that thickens the heart and Fanana Pazir wished to see whether the pacemakers would lessen the thickening, but he never articulated a logical therapeutic motive, and the pacemakers did not improve the children's health, which was not threatened by their condition. 
Instead, the implantation exposed them to surgical risks of pain, infection, and heart damage. Fernando Kazir's surgeries puzzled his cardiologist colleagues, one of whom dismissed the study as saying, there's a lot of witchcraft here. Wow. Um, what does thickening of the heart have to do with electrical stimulation of the heartbeat, which is what a pacemaker is for. So again, it's, it's, it's these Frankenstein experiments on black children, um, probably to see, see just how much damage these children could take. Um, and just for the sheer enjoyment of this particular so-called doctor, um, his, his thrill probably to see black children suffer is what I would, I would probably ascribe it to, just going back to um, Dr. Klingman from previous uh, readings. Um, there's another section briefly on actually the beginning of the uh, chapter 12 on that page. It says, uh, when I went to prison, the concern and worry literally broke my mother's heart. She suffered a series of heart attacks and strokes and died in 1997. She knew I was innocent because I had been at home with my parents when the crime occurred. And over the years, things just wore her down. When you're in prison, if you are close to your family, your whole family's in prison. And I've seen so many black males that I grew up with, those that were not killed, that ended up going to prison. And that's exactly what prison does. There is no way to separate that one human being from the rest of their family without it having a holistically devastating effect on the entire family. And this is exactly what white supremacists hope for. Um, it's just the most horrific thing to have to worry about these sorts of incidences and when he talked about going to jail for being falsely accused of um, a sexual assault and the type of hell that comes for a prisoner who goes to prison for something like that I could imagine or can't even imagine what his mother must have gone through um, worrying about her innocent child sitting in prison and this is the ruse that they use to continue to put our people in prison and, and criminalize us on a holistic level um, again, I'll just stop to give someone else a chance to speak, but I have a few other notes I'm ho hoping I might get a chance to discuss a little bit later. Thank you very much for taking my call, Gus. Yes, sir. Uh, if other folks have uh, commentary, I'll give, again, give out my reminder. Please do not wait until the last minute. I know that is uh, one of our beloved activities here, to wait till we get ready to get to the second audio segment. And ho, ho, ho. I got it all. I got five, six things I want to say. Go ahead and get your hand up now if you think there's something that you would like to share about the book, the first section that we discussed. All the other people that have a hand up that we have not heard from, if you had a commentary, proceed. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I wanted to read a, uh, an article that just came out about a week ago. And it talks about the experiment on, on black, on enslaved Africans from a, a female, from a female uh, slave owner in uh, New Orleans. And uh, it, it says um, she experimented on and tortured her enslaved workers on April 10, 1834. Firemen responded to a fire at the Lowry resident discovered the mangled and disfigured bodies of enslaved Africans who had been locked away in a small attic crawl crawl space. Now this the next sentence I mean this is something else man. 
uh, many, many of the enslaved individuals who appeared to be victims of the indecent medical experiments were chained to walls. One, one enslaved male appeared to have undergone a sloppy gender reassignment surgery, while a female had her arms amputated and skin peeled off. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how much sicker you can get, man. I don't know how much, you know, white supremacy, man, it's something else, but. But um, th this article is on uh, Atlanta Black Star, and the, uh, the name of the article is Eight Gruesome Facts About Notorious Female Slave Master, Madame LaLaurie. And uh, she was a slave owner from um, New Orleans. And, uh, I mean, she she had a, a reassignment surgery. <laughs> I mean that 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 is appalling. But um, with that being said, that's all I wanted to say for now, and I'll mute my line. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Hey, have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, greetings to everybody. Um, this is, um, this book is unbelievable. Uh, I listened last week, and the, the, the main thing I've been listening to is I remember a retired firefighter had said that there's just, this whole system makes you sick. And that's the only thing I can think of while listening to everything. And um, while I've mentioned it as well in reference to the incarceration, I'm also from New York City. And just even growing up in high school in Queens, all of these behaviors and all these experiments, even as a high school student, I can just remember hearing, hearing like you kind of heard about it, but you didn't really think about it until you get a little bit older. Um, and it's just, it's just terrible what this system is doing to our people. But this whole book really puts in perspective what mr fuller says specifically about how they give us poison but it's not necessarily poison and just experiments it's in poison in every aspect of life well we're going to make you angry at your kids and you're not even going to like your kids because we're going to experiment on them oh you're going to experiment on them, then you're not going to want to have them oh but if you do have them we're going to make them seem crazy then we're going to put them in jail oh we can't put them in jail then we'll just amputate them or do something bad to them I mean, this system is just sick, and hopefully we can get this information out to other non-white people so they can be less confused as well. I appreciate your time, and I'll mute my line. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Anybody we haven't heard from? Have you heard? Uh, if you could speak up, that would be helpful. Is that better? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. Uh, good evening, Gus. Uh, good evening to all the callers and the listeners. Um, just astounded. Just astounded about um, 
hearing hearing it, and I'm going to go back and read it about sickle cell, about the trade and and just everything with it. I always thought that it was something natural. I was told that it was something I don't know, it's just like completely natural, like you know, breathing air. Like something, it was a natural occurrence, I, and I didn't. I had no idea what. Uh, just I, I'm just I'm floored, floored. I, I I dated a I dated a woman with uh, with with sickle cell, and I watched her go from time to time, you know, feeling good and healthy, and then like the next day, sometimes sometimes it seemed like with with a switch of the weather, from hot to, to like cool, her her physical state would change. She would, be so sick and yellow eyes and, uh, and it, was, it, it actually wasn't just her it was her her whole family her her mother passed her mother passed away of AIDS her sister her her sister her and her uh, two younger brothers all had sickle cell and she had kids and I think she had like three kids at a time and two of them uh, showed signs of having it of but it was just, you know, it was just, and it was the whole house. So I, I was just, I'm just uh, astounded uh, by that. And um, I'll mute my line on that. Thank you. Other folks uh, who have observations, comments, they want to make sure they get in, uh, feel free. Again, not waiting until the last minute. If you have something you want to share, please. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to all. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. A few observations I made during the read. Um, I want to start off by saying um, they were going to put a baboon heart into a black infant, um, even though even just though they knew this process wouldn't work, that can't cross um, organs in different species of animals or people. Um, but they would they put a baboon heart into a black infant, and I just thought that was. Um, Highly ethical and should have been illegal. Um, the numbers and statistics that they they used um, to show how many black kids are in the hands of the state was staggering. Um, I just had no idea. It was just so many um, people who you know, lost the, the ability to make you know decisions for their own children. Um, you know, the, the part where the doctor performed a, a necessary surgery on a black kid um, that had, you know, severe effects on his well-being and his quality of life and the length of life he lived, uh, while the mother was incapacitated, and, um, you know, I think she was in a coma, and um, she sued, and the court said the child was a mature minor, able to make their own decisions because it was a mature minor. Um, I think the Pellis Court went against that, but it just 
shows how um, their system of justice or their legal system, their criminal justice system, is so colorable. You know, they just link it up as they go along. They write the laws, but it's always ways to get around them. Um, the infants, the infants that were um, being tested for HIV without the parents' consent, and the mothers were never told that their baby had and they were never given their own status because, of course, they would have it as well. Um, so I guess they would come home and they don't get treatment. Um, their kids don't get treatment. And, of course, being that they don't know, they would be spreading it if they have unprotected sex. Um, to me, that's just so criminal. You know, like, someone should have went to jail behind this. I mean, so many laws were broken. There's so much protocols and, and things. Um, lastly, the L.A. measles experiment. Um, the same measles vaccination was killing black people. You know, they call it third world. It's just another word for non-white. Um, black, black people throughout the world, including Haiti and in Africa. And um, it was so bad that I uh, believe the, they stopped buying the vaccination in some countries and providing it to people because the effects were so terrible. So they turn around and um, they give it to kids in Watson Compton instead uh, with no consent from the parents. No one knew that they were giving them this deadly drug. No one goes to jail for doing this. Um, it's just how white supremacy works. Um, and I'll mute my line. Thank you. That was a slight correction. The baboon's heart that was placed, uh, substituted into the child. Uh, the child was baby Faye. That was actually a white child uh, that, that they did this to. Uh, poor white uh, parents, poor white child uh, that they did this to, baby Faye. But, uh, yeah, overwhelming abuses to black people, I think, is the uh, certainly the central theme of the text. Uh, other folks that we haven't heard from? Have commentary? Can I be? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, thank you for taking the call. Uh, greetings to the callers and the listeners uh, chiming in from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <clears throat> um, I was uh, unfortunately in greater confinement before, um, and I had to submit uh, my DNA before I was released, and. <clears throat> I was not in federal custody. I was in custody of the state. And um, it was kind of like a big thing. You know, everybody was talking about it and saying that, um, oh, like, you know, you won't be released if you don't um, give up the DNA. And uh, just hearing um, everything that can be um, known and, uh, like, future in the past, uh, through other family members, I really feel um, violated. Um, another uh, part this, that was uh, very disgusting was the spinal taps done on the infants. Um, it was uh, just really hard to take. And I'm in my line. Thanks for taking the call. Mm -hmm. Uh, other folks have commentary they wanted to add. Anyone we haven't heard from, uh, if you 
people would like to chime in, feel free. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Anybody else that we have not heard from have commentary? Got everybody for now. Might be some folks have. Uh... Oh, I thought somebody was going to speak. Uh, while we are waiting, I'll get in a few thoughts and then we should have time for other people to get their commentary in uh, as well. Uh, just some uh, really great illustrations of what I term the Voltron effect in terms of whites working together uh, in the business the global empire of white terrorism, uh, where she said, uh, not KKK, but the KKI researchers, this is in Baltimore, simultaneously encouraged landlords of approximately 125 tainted housing units to rent to families with young children by paying for the lead abatement. If the landlords rented to such families, they met with chilling success. And this was getting uh, black children, black families to come in and they would have housing with uh, lead paint. And they would get these elevated uh, lead levels and then they could, you know, test all of their wacky new ways uh, of allegedly going about treating this uh, with whites working together. I think we had quite a few illustrations of that uh, in the text this week um, where she said about the institutionalization. I think Roz touched on that earlier. Uh, I can give a plug for Dorothy Roberts. The second time she was on the program, the book that we discussed discussed was shattered bonds uh which is a phenomenal everything she's done is just phenomenal bam put the uh, pen on the paper it's going to be outstanding but shattered bonds where she talks explicitly uh about the white supremacy in the child welfare system uh and just how easy it is for whites to go in and just totally destroy uh black families uh black bonds uh just easily uh, and i'm even reminded of the segment where from last year, it was a black female prosecutor, and she was talking about how all these white women, uh, they had committed really egregious acts of child abuse, and they were not being prosecuted. And she thought it was racism. She thought it was because they were white. And it was just saying, eh, no big deal. We don't want to, you know, mess them up and have them in jail. You know, this black female at the zoo, we're going to prosecute her. She's smoking crack in the bathroom where she probably wanted to be. So we'll prosecute her. That That's just a long legacy. Uh, and I was thinking before she got to that, that I'm sure whites do all kinds of torturing and tampering under the guise of experimentation under black children that are in the foster care system or child welfare system because it's it's even easier. You have even uh, less restrictions. You don't have any parent to deal with uh, at all to do whatever you want to do. And I mean, who cares? These are just the throw at Dr. Frances Cresswells and what she say when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. Uh, moving forwards, uh, what she says... Yeah, the numbers, I thought it made it pretty plain. That's one thing that that has kind of uh, bothered me because I thought that was a really important section last week where she said that just the deceptive use of the term Latino when they were just focusing on black people, even though these might have been black people who were born uh, in a Spanish-speaking area, or maybe this was just a black person who spoke Spanish. So now we're going to use the term Latino to uh, conceal the fact that we are exclusively targeting black people, highly melanated folks. Uh, the passage where she said that 87% of those placed in public juvenile facilities, juvenile justice facilities, are black children, that is staggering. Like, 
wow. <laughs> to me, that's just, we just have these facilities here for you Negros. That's all. That's what we're doing here. Um, when she continued, yeah, I thought you all both uh, made the point. Several of you all brought up about the uh, young child Bonner where uh, he was 15 and they said he was mature. Uh, it's black children on a regular basis uh, where we are adults. We don't get the uh, treatment that the white fellow got who uh, was drinking and killed all those people affluenza with oh man he's just a minor and he's you know not mature enough yet and his parents you know didn't teach him correctly about responsibility he's never had to face any consequences we don't get that sort of empathy understanding you know if you're 13 uh george denny i was reminded the uh black teen uh that they gave the death penalty to in south carolina like at all times even virginia christian we did uh the book about her earlier this year, where she was also a teenager, I believe the first black female uh, to be put to death. I believe the last uh, female teenager to be put to death in the state of Virginia. But we just never get that consideration. You're always an adult and you knew what you were going to do and we're going to punish you to the maximum extent of the law. Uh, let's see. Moving forward. The, I thought it was so telling. Roz read the whole sentence about where uh, they had these black children and they put these pacemakers in. They did not get consent from the parents and it really had no therapeutic benefit uh, for the child. But I thought that last sentence just where he said uh, there's a lot. Well, another, this was another scientist, probably a white person looking at this and going, I, this, I don't see any value to this at all. And he said specifically in quotes, there's a lot of witchcraft here. And I think that's just the case with whites on a regular basis. I think they have us thinking that it's black people that are into some sort of nonsense and mysticism and mysticism and hoodoo and all this other stuff uh, that we just make up things and go out and rattle some bones and sing some songs and prayers and all this. It is whites. They are the ones that are into, I think we said this on the program many times before, that white supremacy and the occult or Satan, uh, Satanism, that these could be synonyms for the same thing, that it's them, uh, that they are coming with all sorts of activities uh, just in terms of the spiritual warfare against black people. And this is just another component of the religion of white supremacy. We'll go in under the guise of we're doing some sort of good. We're trying to help you out and we're just going in to further destroy you and to do it in a manner that is going to bolster bolster us uh, on all levels, even the spiritual white supremacy warfare that we're waging against you. Uh, that just that sentence really stuck out to me for a lot. I already said that the conflation of African-American or black and Hispanic. I just feel like that's really inaccurate, in particular, given what we read last week. Uh, I was funny. Someone asked me, does she talk about vaccinations in this book? And I I told them we haven't read it all. So I had the feeling it was going to come up. I did not know it was going to come up this week uh, in the book where she talked about the suspicion that black people have about vaccines. The only thing that I said was that you have a sizable number of whites who have also raised concerns about vaccines and said they don't want it either. Uh, so it's not like it's just black people uh, being scary uh, or suffering from iatrophobia because of the long history of white terrorism in the medical industry uh, and all areas of people activity. Uh, Atlanta popped up uh, in the book several times this week as a former Atlanta resident. Woo, it is no fun uh, being a black person in Atlanta. James Brown said that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said that, man, that is a tough area of the world. Whites have got it on lock. They have mastered the art of breaking, breaking black people. I would say breaking black males in particular. They have perfected that science in the state of Georgia. Uh, 
the all-white jury, uh, they were talking about uh, all of these black males, Calvin Johnson, who get locked up, some suspicion of you raped a white woman or reckless eyeballing or whatever they want to detail it. Uh, just so many of the cases uh, came to mind that folks have been uh, talking about uh, over the last few years or so, even uh, Matthew Cotton. Uh, the book Picking Cotton, where he suffered the same fate. He was wrongly uh, convicted of raping a white woman in North Carolina, cost him 11 years of his life. Uh, All-white jury, where they just had, I uh, think, multiple trials where they've been talking about that, whether or not uh, your constitutional rights are being violated if you are a black person and you are in front of an all-white, all-racist jury and you end up getting convicted, which is frequently going to be the case if you are a black person worldwide. Uh, just really appreciate the detail as well when she was talking about Calvin Johnson and and what he had to endure uh, for all that time that he was in uh, confinement, the slaving and the swamp infested, uh, snake infested swamps uh, and all of that. Just no regard for your life at all as a black person. Um, I thought the statistics that she gave a little further down, she was talking about Calvin Johnson, uh, where she was talking about the, uh, I'll just give the whole paragraph. She mentioned O.J. Simpson's dream team, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, lawyers uh, at the Cardoza School of Law in New York. So far, DNA evidence has helped them and the 15 to 20 similar projects they have inspired to exonerate more than 328 inmates, including Clerk Bloodsworth and Earl Washington Jr., who were sentenced to die in Maryland and Virginia, respectively. These are mostly African-American men convicted of raping white women. Cowbell, I guess, should be there, says Newfield. Only 10% of reported sex assaults are allegations of white women attacked by black men, yet most, 54% of all convictions proven to be unjust involve African-American men wrongfully convicted of assaulting white women. This is a crime that seems associated with many wrong convictions. I thought that was extremely important because that trend has been the case for the entirety of white supremacy, it seems, at least for the last 150 years. Ida B. Wells talked about that extensively. Uh, any white woman, all she has to do, drop a few tears, that nigger raped me, and your life is probably going to be over. Uh, let's see. The DNA uh, evidence I thought was really important. Can I hit Dorothy Roberts again? I said I'm just, I am an unabashed fan, uh, and she's been here three times. Her third book, when she was here in 2011, uh, Fatal Invention, she talks about all of the DNA stuff. This book was published before Fatal Invention. I'm sure she would have referenced that book, too, if this book uh, had been, or if Dorothy Roberts' work had come out earlier. But that book came out in 2011. But she talked about all this. We talked about all of this in detail and when they have shows, uh, the program, I think it was on PBS with Dr. Henry Louis Gates uh, about, you know, let's we're going to go back through your family and your uh, DNA and all that. Do the testing. And I said, she said, I have great suspicion about all of this, given the history of white supremacy, given what we've read in this book, almost the entirety of it now. All black people should have astronomical suspicion about whites coming to us for anything, saying, hey, let me. Uh, Get a little bit of your genetic material and uh, we're going to go through it and uh, this is going to really hook you up. You're going to be able to tell you about your great, 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 great grandmother and great grandfather and what part of the continent you came. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Just let us get a little genetic material and uh, we'll get you documentation. We'll sign it. We'll get the best white scientists to get right back to you. 
grand suspicion. White's stockpiled this information. I'm so glad that she went through that in detail. Dorothy Robertson, uh, Fatal Invention, she went through a lot of the same areas in terms of inmates. I think she even included this has uh, stepped up to if you are arrested, you haven't even been convicted. You can be detained, you know, for anything, much less you can be convicted uh, when you are innocent. But, I mean, you can be detained, arrested when you have done nothing uh, and that they can take a DNA sample and then they have that in their files. They have that on record. It's no way. It's nothing. You really have no recourse to get it back. They can lie to you. They can have who knows how long they have this material uh, on file. What are they doing with it? Does this get outsourced to other? Co- I mean, oh, just a myriad of concerns. And they lie. They lie all the time. So even if they have laws that are supposed to safeguard what can be done with this, can this information be shared? How long they hold to it? I've, that's been the totality of this book that they flagrantly violate these laws when it comes to black people. So I mean, it's just. Oh, my God. It's just so many things to consider. And I would encourage folks to check out Dorothy, both of Dorothy Bothers, uh, Dorothy Roberts books that I mentioned today, Fatal Invention and Shattered Bonds, because she goes into much further detail about uh, these two crucial elements, uh, child welfare and then uh, all of the racism that's happening at the uh, molecular science level with the CRISPR and uh, collecting of uh, genetic material. Uh, Let's see. Moving forward. Oh, she just said she just took the words out of my mouth. The United States laws prevent the federal government from retaining DNA samples of the innocent. But the states are doing just this, which I would expect white people to do. Um, Let's see. Oh, the confusion. I thought that was so important because we bring up confusion on the program all the time where it says uh, strange. This is in chapter 12. Strangely, scientists as well as laypersons confused well sickle cell carriers with homozygotes who had both genes for sickle cell disease and therefore had the disease. However, this confusion was no accident. I can only say that like 5,000 times for emphasis. This confusion was no accident. In my view, any form of confusion that is to the detriment of black people, it should always like the position should be. This was a deliberate act of white supremacy until proven Otherwise, anything that comes out where it's confused, whoops, we said the wrong thing, whoops, we got that wrong, we stapled it wrong, we missed, whoops, my bad, and it's to black people's detriment. You did it intentionally. This was a deliberate act of white supremacy. White people never, ever, for any reason, should get the benefit of the doubt that this was just, oh, my bad, we just, you know, we messed one up. Give us, give us another chance and we'll get it right. No. She continues with that. It resulted in profits for the ortho pharmaceutical company of McNeil Laboratories, the company that sold the so-called sickle cell screening test, which did not differentiate between the sickle cell trait and the sickle cell disease. I can only conclude that this was done deliberately, uh, that they just wanted to make an excuse to not hire black people. Uh, she touches on the eugenics, comes right back in. This is an excuse now for us to recommend that you niggers not get married or not have children. We certainly do not want uh, too many melanated babies popping out uh white genetic annihilation is always at the forefront of our thinking uh and just any excuse in general just to abuse and mistreat black people uh moving forward and that's classic white supremacy this is one of the things when we talk about words when mr fuller emphasizes that i had never heard anyone before i heard mr fuller when he said that just deceptive use of words language that is the primary tool 
of racist man, racist woman, uh, racist child. And it's all in this book right here where she says the very first sentence of the preamble of the National Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act enacted in 1972 to foster sickle cell research, screening, counseling, and education is untrue. Two million Americans suffer from sickle cell disease. Actually, two million people were healthy carriers and fewer than 100,000 Americans suffered from sickle cell anemia. Again, I just don't take the position that, oh, this is just white ignorance, that they're just so dumb and stupid that they... No, this is an agenda of falsifying information that is going to be to the detriment, purposeful, deliberate, planned detriment of black people. And they do this all the time. Deadliest shooting in the history of America, Orlando, deliberately false information with an agenda. Uh, I think I will pause there. Um, yeah, I'm great. I can pause there. Anybody uh, have any other comments they wanted to make sure they got in? If we have not heard from you, you had commentary you wanted to get in, you should do so now before we get to the second audio segment. Anybody else have commentary they wanted to make? Everybody satisfied? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to to um, make you know make sure everybody else said whatever they had to say, but that DNA, them uh, taking the DNA and all that stuff, I always because. You know, going through the law system or whatever, you know, they, they take your, your DNA as it was stated. But, um, you know, in prison, it's, it's, it's just like that. And But they tell you <clears throat> you can't EOS, you can't end, end up your sentence, like you can't get out until you give them a sample of your blood. If they don't, if they don't already have. Matter of fact, they already, they already have other samples, you know, but they, they make you do it again before you leave and make you take a, uh, a AIDS test, uh, you know, a HIV um, uh, test. Um, and they test you for a couple other things, if I'm not mistaken, but they definitely make it that you, you cannot get out of prison. If you refuse to do that, they, that's what they say. And then, you know, now that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, more educated, I feel like, yeah, they could make it happen where you never get out of prison just for not giving up. Uh, your blood, um, and it made me think of. I'm not sure if you, <clears throat> excuse me, you or or uh, any of the listeners have seen uh, the latest uh, uh, Incredible Hulk movie. Uh, came out maybe I'm not sure 2009, 10, something. Like, I'm not. I'm not sure. But um, there's a scene. There's a scene in the movie where one of the characters. Um, I, for, I forget his, his name. I'm, I used to be a comic book guy. But um, I forget his name. He ends up being some uh, uh, evil character in the, in, in the plot. And, and um, But at the beginning, he and uh, the, the character that plays plays uh, the Hulk, they convey with each other, both scientists, professors or whatever. So he's sending the guy his blood. And the guy is supposed to be getting his blood to see if he can figure out how to extract the um, the gamma radiation or whatever. But in the scene, he has taken the blood sample, the one the, the, the one blood sample, and he's duplicated it like 
I don't know how many times. You just see rows and rows and rows of of packages of blood. And, you know, they go into you have to destroy all of this, blah, 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 use it for bad. And it just, my mind just went to this row, this uh, uh, warehouse is full of melanated blood. Just just that they've duplicated, they played with, they've done all kind of stuff, stuff to, to it. And I just, I started to think about how many of us go through the prison system, have gone through the prison, will go through the prison system, and all the samples that they must have and just, I don't know. So I, I just wanted to comment comment on that. And um, just, I don't know if any of you, if you like I said, if you or any of the listeners have seen that, that uh, movie, that particular scene, but it was, it is it's eerie. It's eerily similar to what's going on in real life. Nah, I'm I'm you myself. Sure, sure. Hey. Hey, uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I just can't imagine them uh, needing consent to do the the DNA testing for people at this side of the prison system. Being that they're already considered civilly dead, civil chair Mortis um, by law, they don't have the rights over their bodies anyway. Um, they don't have the right to say no. Uh, that's why in this book there's been so much experimentation done on prisoners um, with relatively no consequences to whoever did it. Because uh, what's the, uh, once you're in that prison system, the warden is actually the person in charge. Uh, in charge of every decision your body um, they make the body. If you see a doctor, if, you, if you're dying, you know, if you get treatment, I mean, that's all up to the warden. And um, I'm just really suspicious as to why they, what, what exactly was that last reason they took the DNA form? Was that was that probably consent to send it to the world database or something? Because I just can't imagine the state or the federal government, uh, once you're in their custody, you're their property. Um, as for the 13th Amendment. Hey, Gus. Yes, sir. I was thinking about what the, um, the, the brother that was just talking about the Hulk movie, I did see it and I know exactly what you're talking about. It had a similar effect on me as well. But I was thinking with all of the, um, collection of these DNA samples and they're forcing, um, all of these black males to submit their DNA. Um, I think they're going to end up taking some of that DNA to falsely convict people, meaning the DNA that they have, especially if they, if they do start duplicating it, like the um, guy was saying in the Hulk movie, that they will essentially start sprinkling your DNA over a crime scene that you weren't at in order to falsely convict you. Almost like um, how, Back during the crack era, you know, cops, some cops were known to like kill black people. And it's like, like, uh, I think, uh, I think it was Biggie said it in the song, um, sprinkle some crack on them, make it drug related, like that sort of thing. Um, so it's not just to keep track of your DNA, but also eventually they'll just start falsely convicting people and saying, hey, you know, DNA, um, DNA testing is however 99.999, whatever, why they're going to tell percent accurate. And that says that you were at the scene of the crime, even though you may not have been there, like the, um, the brother who was brought up in, in the text itself. 307, 
briefly that she talked about that I found to be very profound. She said, uh, will the novel DNA fingerprinting technology lead to the imprisonment of more African-American men than have been freed because of it? This technology's benevolent face has been seen most often, but it has another sinister visage. This dual nature holds true for almost every application of genetic science to African-American health and welfare. Historically, every boon appears to have been accompanied by a stigmatizing threat to health or freedom. For American blacks, genetics has always been, has always been wielded as a two-edged sword. And it made me think of um, the whole body cam thing, because if you look back um, when people first started getting footage of the murder and brutality that was exhibited on black males. You had all of these riots. So this just go Rodney King out there, for example. And then now you have cops wearing body cams, just wholesale murdering people on camera. And it's nothing like, they, like it means nothing anymore. They get exonerated almost immediately. Most of them don't even go to trial and they have, pure footage of them committing murder. The cop would lie and say that the, the black male had some weapon or that he didn't comply. And then when they look at the film footage, none of that is true, but yet the cops still get off. And I think what she alluded to there is essentially the same thing that we were seeing with the whole camera technology. They always find a way to neutralize whatever means um, black people have to try and help themselves uh, become uh, or fight the system of white supremacy or, or, to get themselves free if they've been falsely accused of something. So um, I know we have to go to the second segment, so I'll meet my line there, but thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I know Dr. Cambon, I did make that note as we were reading. Dr. Cambon, uh, his view was that the reason you have all these laws, the stop and, stop and search or stop and frisk, whatever it is, stop and fondle black people, uh, he thinks that it is for the purpose that they white people are not ignorant, they know what they're doing, uh, and they want to get hands on as many black people as possible. They know that the next uh, Asada Shakur, Joan Little, Mark Essex, Nat Turner, they know that the next generation of that black person that correctly recognizes the problem, our enemy, whites, uh, and goes about, you know, the work of trying to solve that problem. Uh, and they want to be able to neutralize that person immediately. So they want to get hands on as many black people as possible, genetic information so that they can study uh, and do everything that they can to maintain their system. He's long maintained that that is exactly uh, what is happening with all of this. And I know Mr. Fuller said that, too. He felt uh, for years he's felt that that's exactly what it is. Like, let's let's get you any reason to get you in custody, get your fingerprints, get everything uh, already stored in their databank. So then when we have a crime next Thursday, oh, already got your fingerprints and anything else that we want to sprinkle on the scene. And, oh, you were there. We got it. You left blood sample and urine sample and fingernail clippings, finger. All of that, uh, that's, you know, that's just how they get down. Uh, and I'm glad that she has explicitly pointed out uh, how frequently consent is not necessary at all. Like, I mean, who cares? Well, we're talking about children, older people, whatever. Well, sometimes we don't even have to give uh, the ruse that we are making some sort of pretend effort to get consent. We're just going to do what we do and practice racism white supremacy that is what you can do when you dominate when you're in a powerful position once again that's what domination looks like uh with that we will get to the second audio segment we are cruising right on uh closing in on the end of the book uh we are on oh i was going to say something about gattaca really quick but i'll save it for the next 
Uh, I'll save it for the next segment. Uh, we are still in Chapter 12. Uh, we are kind of, I guess, kind of close to the end of Chapter 12. It's the subheading, Testing, Testing. That's where we're picking up at, uh, Chapter 12. Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington, audio segment number two, Context of White Supremacy. Testing, Testing. Today, unscrupulous employers continue to wield genetic screening, but they now do so surreptitiously, without employees' informed consent. In 2001, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission charged Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad with running genetic tests on workers who filed claims for carpal tunnel syndrome. If tests had shown them to have any genetic predisposition to the condition, the railroad could have argued that it should not be held liable. Some lawsuits spawned by such abuses allege racial bias. Perhaps the most egregious was the case of Norman Bloodsaw v. Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, a research center that the federal government ran in cooperation with the University of California. In 1998, 172 employees, all but one of them black, sued LBL when they learned that they had secretly been tested for syphilis, pregnancy, and sickle cell trait without their knowledge that the blood and urine they had supplied during required physical examinations would be tested in this manner. These tests were insulting as well as intrusive and were illegal under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But what is particularly disquieting is the lack of scientific sophistication the laboratory demonstrated in testing only its black employees for the sickle cell trait. Scientists should have known that not only blacks were at risk, and they should also have known that carrier status imparted no reasonable disability risk. The blatantly racial nature of the screening was suggested when plaintiffs learned that the only white employee to have been tested for venereal disease was a white man married to a black woman. In August 2000, the University of California settled the $2.2 million suit brought by these black employees. The privacy of these workers was illegally assailed, and they could have been unfairly stigmatized. But there is another reason that being tested for genetic issues without one's consent is damaging. The price of genetic knowledge can be intolerably high. The health information contained in one's genes can give clues to prevention and self-care, but such information can also generate futile anxiety and lay one open to layers of medical and financial discrimination. If you know of a genetic condition and lie about it to your insurance company, they can refuse to cover you, observed Marion G. Secundi, Ph.D., the late director of the National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare. If you learn you are at risk for a disease that cannot be treated, the information can be worse than useless. The knowledge will not enable you to protect yourself, and you will suffer mental anguish over an illness that you may never acquire. Employers who refuse to hire people when they learn of genetic indicators for a disease may relegate them to an unemployable biological underclass. And that's not just a concern for those with known genetic disorders, because everyone's genome harbors a few bad apples, genes that could, but do not necessarily, indicate a health problem. The more people are forced to reveal about their genome, 
the greater their risk of suffering genetic discrimination. Currently, black people are most likely to be subjected to such testing, in large part because testing for sickle cell disease is the most common genetic screen used by employers and insurers. A 2000 congressional report predicts that such discrimination may become widespread as employers are pressured to contain health care costs. Already, black women, who have a higher than normal risk of the BRCA1 gene, which confers as much as a 70% higher risk of breast cancer, fear their insurers and employers may discover their status should they seek genetic testing. Some women seek gene testing on their own and pay for it out of their own pockets because they don't want their insurance company to know, noted Teen Hamilton, an Alabama genetic counselor. Might other genetic tests preclude African Americans from desirable jobs in the near future? Consider, for example, that a genetic mutation affecting resistance to chemotherapy occurs more frequently in African and African American populations than in Caucasian or Asian populations. A 1998 research study of African Americans and Hispanics living in Manhattan revealed that they harbor a genetic variant, APOE Epsilon 4, that places them at a higher relative risk of developing Alzheimer's disease than whites. African Americans are more likely than whites to be healthy carriers of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase G6PHD syndrome, which can cause the loss of red blood cells and affects many medical risks and medication reactions. If this carrier status is detected by tests and is miscategorized as a disease state, will blacks be barred from desirable jobs? Of course, each of these genetic complements appears in other ethnic groups as well, but the rates, and thus the risks, are higher among African Americans. There is also the widespread misconception that simply having a disease gene means you have the disease. This is not so. Most common adult-onset genetically influenced diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and cancer, typically result from several genetic factors, not from a single gene. It often also takes environmental triggers, obesity, nutrient deficiency, exposure to noxious chemicals, for example, to cause the disease to manifest. What's more, genes interact to temper one another's effects. All these factors complicate determining who is at risk, and they also hamper scientists' attempts at gene therapy. Less Than Global, The Human Genome Project Used therapeutically, genetics hold out promises of enormous improvements in African-American health. But the promises have as yet gone unrealized. For example, research into sickle cell disorder, the first identified molecular disease, remains underfunded, and the disease still awaits an effective treatment but effective genetic therapies were mounted within just a few years after the gene for cystic fibrosis was discovered in 1989. Whites are at much higher risk than blacks for cystic fibrosis. Therapeutic research sometimes bypasses blacks because finding a gene for an illness and curing an illness are two very different things, and decades may separate one from the other. 
Also, the interests of African Americans too often fall below the radar screen of mainstream genetic research, and much more quality research should be undertaken into blacks' genetic risks. This may seem an ironic concern for a book that has focused upon the experimental abuse of blacks, but it is merely the obverse of the research abuse coin. As research has become an important avenue of therapy, the proportionate inclusion of African American in ethical, therapeutic research has become imperative. Take the Human Genome Project, HGP, which has been touted as a unifying global enterprise to map all of humanity's genes and has been sold to the public on the strength of its role in finding cures for many illnesses. The U.S. National Institutes of Health and London's Wellcome Trust have completed the vital arms of the project, which began in 1990. The 30,000 genes constituting the genetic makeup of a human being have all been identified and mapped. However, Dr. Georgia Dunstan, a geneticist at Howard University, claimed in the mid-1990s that of the more than 60 families whose genes were analyzed by the project, there were no people of African descent. She lamented that severing the African branch of the family tree is a critical error because African gene pools are the oldest and consequently the most diverse on the planet due to human life's having evolved in Africa. Dunstan asked, what picture of humankind can emerge without Africa? Also, of the 100,000 professional HGP scientists from 16 separate research universities in six countries, only a few, aside from laboratory assistants, were black. Dr. Betty G. Graham, program manager for the National Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institutes of Health, told the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education, Unfortunately, African Americans have not been involved in the first phase of the Human Genome Project. However, the relatively small numbers of blacks conducting biomedical research for the project also proved a factor. Howard University was, however, belatedly invited to contribute data and has since received considerable support, which enabled it to open the National Human Genome Center with Dunstan as its director. Today, the center is pursuing several projects of importance to African-American health. Among them is a search for candidate genes of complex diseases that are common in African-American populations. These include prostate cancer, breast cancer, asthma, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and HIV-AIDS. The near-homogeneity of the HGP is ironic because the stirring message of the Human Genome Project data is a ringing denunciation of race. Analyses found so little variation among the genomes of what have been thought of as separate racial groups, and so many genetic characteristics in common, that race was found to have no basis in biology. This book uses the term race because it is accepted argot, a convenient, commonly used way of designating ethnic groups that are perceived as distinct. We all know what we mean, or think we do, when we denote someone's race as black or white. In our nation, race is inarguably important in discussions of health and disease. However, the Human Genome Project has erased any lingering doubts. 
biological race does not exist because all humans share the same genes. Although the proportions of genes differ, meaning that genetic differences exist, these variations map very poorly onto what we think of as races. This seems to introduce a logical contradiction. If race is not real, how can we speak of race-based therapeutics? The answer is that race is real, but it is not biological. It is social. What correlates very closely to most racial differences in life expectancy, mortality, disease susceptibility, and survival is the race to which one is perceived as belonging. This is contrary to conventional wisdom and at first blush seems easily refuted. The racial differences between an Icelander and a Nigerian seem obvious. But so do the differences between a dark-skinned Asian from southern India and a pale North African. Yet the former person is classified as Caucasian and the latter as black. Historically, confusion has been sown by the fact that in the early days of the Republic and of African enslavement, the Africans who were imported represented only the polar opposite of pale-skinned Europeans in skin color and hair types. Africa is home to people of every skin color, hair type, stature, or other physical measure. But the rich diversity of Africa, and for that matter of Europe, was not represented in 17th century America. Only the dark-skinned denizens of West Africa and principally pale-skinned Anglo-Saxons populated the colonies. If our forebears had included dark-skinned Finns and Mediterraneans on the one hand, and North Africans, East Africans, Egyptians, and Somalians on the other, they would have had a better appreciation for the presence of similar phenotype traits in all ethnic groups. When one looks at the diverse bounty of all peoples, it is easier to appreciate that most of the various criteria we have for sorting people into races, skin color, eye color, hair texture, body type, blood types, disease susceptibility, map very poorly onto genetic frequencies, albeit with a few dramatic exceptions. For there are exceptions, and although they are rare, it is important from a medical point of view to recognize them when we see them if we want to devise the best possible medical treatments. However, many genetic diseases are no respecters of race. As we have seen, sickle cell disease affects Mediterranean peoples, Africans, and South Asians, among others. The autoimmune disorder sarcoidosis afflicts principally African Americans and Scandinavians. Some genetic risk factors for diseases such as heart disease, prostate cancer, and low birth weight are present in African Americans, but not in Nigerians and West Indians, suggesting that factors other than African heredity are at work. Today, the commercial marketing of genetic theories is being undertaken with data from the HGP, with African American markets very much in mind. A vital part of this marketing plan involves African American pharmacogenomics, the custom tailoring of medications to exploit genetic variations. But statistically, only a small percentage of genetic variations, about 0.1%, one in a thousand, can be laid to race. 
exploiting that real one genetic difference in a thousand to develop more effective medications for African Americans or for any other group is an exciting, very positive tool, especially if it can focus upon major killers such as cancer, heart disease, stroke, and HIV. However, most genetically distinct diseases and differences between ethnic groups account for only a small fraction of the illness and death in any community. Heart of Darkness In the late 1990s, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Pharma, boasted that its members had 99 medications in development that addressed the particular medical needs of African American patients. By 2004, that number had grown to 249 medicines. But these were not drugs tailored specifically to black patients' medical needs. Nearly all of these medications treated illnesses that African Americans suffer at higher rates than whites, which encompasses nearly every serious ailment. It is certainly laudable that drug companies are producing medications that address black health needs. However, the implication that these were tailored to racial needs is easily recognizable as a marketing ploy. The case of Bidal, a heart drug approved by the FDA in July 2005, is different. Bidal is an oral combination of two drugs, hydralazine and isosorbid dinitrate, that acts as antioxidants, widen blood vessels, and produce nitric oxide, which, Bidal makers say, provides beneficial effects for African-American heart failure patients. It was developed for its potential to reduce deaths and serious illness among African-Americans diagnosed with congestive heart failure. CHF is a condition in which the heart muscle, which has been weakened or otherwise compromised by injury or disease, fails to maintain circulation properly. The overwhelmed heart triggers a cascade of functional deterioration that culminates in a slow death. It is commonly fatal within a decade of diagnosis. People with congestive heart failure may suffer from constant fatigue, swollen legs, and respiratory problems. Or heart failure may be insidiously asymptomatic. Beidel's patent holders say their medication's mechanism of action addresses a genetic anomaly that makes African Americans particularly susceptible to CHF. This medication is in the vanguard of new commercial marketing of genetic therapies for blacks. Nitromed, the Cambridge, Massachusetts biotechnology firm that developed Bidil, claims that it is the first specifically tailored medication to treat congestive heart failure in an estimated 750,000 African-American patients. Clearly, Bidil should be embraced and supported if it works to decrease death and disability due to CHF. But its marketing as an exclusively African-American genetic medication is just as clearly troubling for both scientific and social reasons. First, is the medication driven by a true biological dimorphism in black heart patients, or is it the product of a fertile market? In an illuminating analysis in the Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law, and Ethics, Jonathan Kahn has weighed the medical evidence and found it wanting. 
His investigation reveals that Bidel began life not as a specialized medication tailored for African-American heart patients, but as a heart drug aimed at the general public. Neither its first clinical trials in 1987 nor its patent application in 1988 mentioned racial applications. And only after the FDA Advisory Committee refused to approve Bidel's use for a general population in 1997 did Nitromed reanalyze 20-year-old data from its first trials, looking for possible special applications that might allow it to approach the FDA with a revised application. The Food and Drug Administration's Modernization Act had recently required inclusion of racial minorities and women in clinical trials, and in 1997, Surgeon General David Satcher drafted the resolution that made resolving racial health disparities a national priority. In 1998, Bidel was reborn as a black medication, rescuing the drug from pharmaceutical oblivion. But how did Nitromed make a case for Bidel's transformation from a medication for everyone to a genetic drug that addresses specific weaknesses in African Americans, even before clinical trials were conducted? Was it based upon a proven special utility for black patients? In part, Nitromed achieved this by creating a perception of CHF in blacks as a racially distinctive disease, then supplying the medication that was necessary to address this biological dimorphism. First, as Kahn has pointed out, Bidil's makers made a case for CHF as a racial disease claiming that there is a huge difference in the mortality rate between black and white patients with CHF. Nitromed scientists claimed that CHF kills blacks at twice the rate it does whites, and publications from Science to Today in Cardiology, as well as press releases from the Association of Black Cardiologists, affirmed this disparity. But the data contradict this claim. It is true that proportionately twice as many blacks as whites died of CHF in 1988, but reducing the rate of heart failure in African Americans has been a medical success story, and by 2003, the gap had nearly closed. Most recent CDC figures indicate that the racial ratio of heart failure deaths is 1.1 blacks for every one white. They are almost identical. Kahn traced the provenance of Nitromed's widely disseminated figures and found that they were based upon very old studies, including National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, NHLBI, data collected in 1995. At the time Nitromed was using this data, it was already woefully outdated and no longer accurate. Nitromed's researchers used numbers that were not only old, but also inappropriate because they cited National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, NHANES, data from 1988 that described prevalence, the number of people suffering from CHF, which is very different from mortality, the number of deaths from CHF. One 1987 study does not seem at first blush to support the Nitromed figures because it indicated that 1.8 black men died of CHF for every affected white man, and that 2.4 black women with CHF died for every afflicted white woman. But in addition to being old, superseded figures, 
These figures describe deaths within a specific age range, from 35 to 74. Thus, they reveal a serious disparity in the age at death, not in absolute deaths. The same percentage of blacks and whites die of CHF. But 50% of blacks who die of CHF are between the ages of 35 and 74, while only 30% of whites who die of CHF are 74 or younger. Most whites who die of CHF do so quite late in life. In short, bad data helped Bidel boosters to portray CHF as a racial disease by exaggerating its death rates in blacks and raising the specious question of why so many more blacks than whites die of the disease. Nitromed explained that only physiology could explain such a dramatic disparity in the death rate. In doing so, Beidel's promoters discount the well-substantiated research into myriad non-genetic factors that drive CHF death rates. Non-genetic interventions in the form of better access to medical care, more preventive lifestyle changes, and high-tech interventions have already cut the African-American CHF death rates from twice that of whites in 1988 to essentially the same as whites in 2003. This fairly quick reduction didn't emanate from genetic techniques or changes, and thus strongly suggests that non-genetic factors are most important. So does recent research that suggests heart failure is fed by hypertension and kidney disease. Hypertension in blacks, in turn, has been shown to be driven by stress, including the stress of racism, by diets that are high in fat, possibly by salt sensitivity, by overweight, and by obesity. There is even evidence that hantavirus infection spread by rodents in urban settings can cause kidney disease and hypertension. So can exposures to some poisons in such urban settings. A slew of reports, beginning with those published by the New England Journal of Medicine in February 1998, have shown that limited access to high-tech care has also fed blacks higher mortality from heart disease. But researchers and news articles that discuss the merits of Beidel tend to give the non-genetic factors short shrift. As Kahn points out, Clyde Yancey, a black cardiologist on the steering committee of Beidel's trial, says that the data do not support socioeconomic factors as important contributors to the excess mortality rate seen in African Americans affected with heart failure. Bidil patent holder J. Cohn, M.D., and his colleagues wrote papers positing a genetic mechanism for CHF in blacks, a pathophysiology found primarily in black patients that may involve nitric oxide insufficiency, which makes the cause of their heart failure different from that of whites. Clyde Yancey agreed, saying, Heart failure in blacks is likely to be a different disease, and adds, the emerging field of genomic medicine has provided insight into potential mechanisms to explain racial variability in disease expression. But even if the putative difference in nitric oxide metabolism were found primarily in African-American patients, this would not mean that all African-American patients in heart failure harbor it, or even most African-American patients. 
nor would it mean that such an anomaly is restricted to blacks. Since the publication of Kahn's analysis, Nitromed has quietly revised the numbers in its promotional materials. It no longer claims that African-American CHF deaths are double those of whites. But the alarm sounded by its earlier claims already served its purpose. The FDA gave the drug another opportunity in clinical trials, this time to prove that the drug is efficacious against CHF in African-Americans. In 2003, Nitromed, with the Association of Black Cardiologists as a highly visible participant and supporter, mounted a clinical trial. Nitromed enrolled 1,050 African Americans for the trial of Bidel as a treatment for heart failure in African American subjects. The trial was called AHEFT, an acronym for the African American Heart Failure Trials, and it tested Bidel not on its own, but in conjunction with fully approved heart medications. In August 2004, the clinical trials to demonstrate Bidel's safety and efficacy were halted because, its makers say, the results were clearly beneficial to blacks suffering from heart failure. The results showed that 6.2% of patients given Bidel died. 10.2% of patients who did not receive Bidel died, constituting a 43% survival advantage for those taking the medications. The FDA has approved Bidel's race-based labeling. This means that although a doctor may choose to prescribe it for non-African Americans in an off-label use, insurers will not have to cover its cost for them. The study should have included whites in order to provide evidence that the drug works differently in blacks. But because the patents for use in all races will expire in 2007, there is no economic incentive to test the drug in whites. Nitromed will hold the patent for the use of Bidil in blacks until 2020. In an ironic twist, whites are being subjected to racial exclusion by being denied access to testing or use of a heart drug that could benefit them or even save their lives. Nitromed stock rode the good news from the AHEF trials to a 73% leap in share price. Because it was tested only with other drugs, Bidel typically will be prescribed for use in concert with other drugs, not instead of them, so that Bidel will not compete in the marketplace with established heart medications. This will help Bidel sales, and this could even explain why Bidel was tested only against a placebo. Had Bidel been tested alone, researchers would have run the risk that the study results could have been different, finding that Bidel provided less protection to black patients than standard medications. Because heart disease is the number two killer of blacks and whites, Bidel should be embraced if it indeed conveys a racial benefit to blacks with CHF. So should any therapy that accurately targets clinically meaningful disease vulnerabilities in African Americans. But the development of a genetic drug for what has been newly dubbed a racial disease also raises long-term issues that temper its immediate benefits. We soon will see other medications marketed for genetically distinct populations of African Americans. The glaucoma medication, Travitan, is being promoted to African Americans as the first glaucoma drug to demonstrate greater effectiveness in black patients, although the FDA-required informational insert indicates in fine print 
that eye color may be a better indicator of its effectiveness than race. Prostate cancer therapies genetically tailored for African-American men are in the pipeline. Recently, 89% of breast cancer tumors from African-American women tested positive for a newly found gene, BP1, compared with 57% of those from Caucasian women. Can a special medication tailored to the black breast be far behind? It will also be important for African Americans to study, and where applicable, to support such research efforts by joining ethical therapeutic trials that offer the best possible safety protections. To find these trials, African Americans should discuss them with their personal physicians and consult resources available online that offer how-to primers on joining clinical trials. But unsurprisingly, given the subject of this book, I also advise African Americans to look before they leap. Although many black cardiologists and many in the African American news media applaud the Bidel innovation, the specter of neo-racial disease based upon questionable genetics should give one pause for many reasons. African Americans must actively support the search for disease risks and therapies, but they must also be conscious of the long-term import of funneling scarce resources into race-based medications unless they provide the best therapeutic approaches. A genetic fix for a non-genetic disease is unlikely to be the most efficient approach. What's more, racializing CHF allows scientists and policymakers to ignore the environmental factors that are the chief causes of the racial heart disease disparity. Racial genomics also raises profound social questions. If physicians fall back into the antebellum habit of treating black ailments according to race, will not this condemn many to poorer, stereotyped, less appropriate care? Because race is not a biological reality, medications based upon group biological differences will work only for some African Americans. This will lead to a false sense of security and will stymie the search for more inclusive, more efficacious, and, in a word, better treatments. We must recognize the powerful stigmatizing potential of genetic approaches to disease, especially when they are touted as the only approach. From tools that could release or convict, to the troubled history of genetic disease fixes that may provide cures or mere stigmatization, Genetics offers a cornucopia of medical answers and pitfalls to blacks. The next chapter gives the history of another mixed blessing, research into infectious diseases. And that's where we will pick up at for next Friday. Again, we are cruising towards the conclusion of the text. Uh, folks would like to participate, the number to dial. Six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. 
Uh, again, I will encourage folks not to wait to the last minute. We have approximately a half hour uh, to the conclusion of the program. So if you think there's something, even something from the first section, if you didn't give a, get a hand up or if you just didn't uh, have time to share, uh, go ahead and get your hand up now. Uh, and we will get your observations, feedback, comments from the second audio segment. Uh, everyone who dialed in should be with us. We'll start with uh, Lady in New York. If you have comments you'd like to share, you should be with us. I did want to share about the genetic testing, um, and it relates to this book and to another book um, that is on my wish list, and uh, it's by a different author, um, Dr. Clyde Winters, and the book is called The um, Paleogeography of Afro-Americans, Africans, and in this book he's pretty much discussing how um, the new trend of genetic testing for um, black people to see, you know, what part of Africa, what percentage of white or whatever ethnicity they may be is a sham. Um, And I guess it's being that Africans are, um, you know, the, the first modern humans then they would contain all these varying genes. So he's pretty much saying in his book, you can't say that this is a white gene, this is a black gene. Um, it just doesn't work that way. And, and so I'm very interested in this book because uh, a lot of people are interested in these tests and they can run into the thousands, um, especially if you're including components of what diseases, um, that you may have a predisposition uh, to. So I, I find it really interesting um, because we know they lie about everything else. And um, this genetic testing, they most certainly could be lying about that. You most certainly could be using that um, in a way to either harm or just plain lie to black people. Uh, so um, I was I was very interested in this chapter, and I'm going to um, follow up by uh, getting that book so I can read a little bit more about um, how uh, this testing is kind of preying upon uh, black people. Uh, so I will mute my line with that. Right on, right on. Uh, I think all the other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up and would like to participate, you should be with us. Uh, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Excuse me. All right, thank you. Um, I wanted to start on actually page one, uh, 373, excuse me, 313. Um, there was a brief paragraph that said, genetic counselors who had dispensed pointed advice along with diagnoses since the 1950s were supposed to merely, uh, merely excuse me, supposed merely to provide diagnosis and disease information, but they still practiced virtually unregulated and many recommended abortion on the basis of testing that could not discern the trait from the disease. For at-risk couples who conceived at that time, recalls Renelia Randall, the advice was pregnancy termination. Some viewed these attempts to limit the fertility of blacks. 
And it kind of made me think of it probably was the Zika virus of its day because um, I sent you, a, uh, you and uh, Thomas and New York, an, an article that was talking about how uh, massive numbers of um, people in, uh, in, in South America who are afflicted with the disease are going to get record numbers of abortions. And these are places that are heavily Catholic, so they're really not for abortions. That's a cultural thing with them. So to even hear that, to me, like this seems like what they were doing with sickle cell as well. It was kind of like the Zika of its day where someone was pregnant. They're like, oh, you know, you need to terminate that pregnancy. This child's not going to be a viable, um, you know, black human being. And, of course, you, most of them probably went along with, with, with the suggestion, but obviously had a sneaking suspicion that racism and white supremacy has something to do with it as well. Um, I found that the paragraph at the bottom of that page very telling. It says, in 1998, 172 employees, all but one of them, sued LBL when they learned that they had secretly been tested for syphilis, pregnancy, and sickle cell trait without their knowledge, that the blood and urine they had supplied during required physical examinations would be tested in this manner. These tests were insulting as well as intrusive and were illegal under the American with Disabilities Act. But what is particularly disquieting is the lack of scientific sophistication of the laboratory, excuse me, excuse me, scientific sophistication the laboratory demonstrated in testing only its black employees for the sickle cell trait. Scientists should have known that not only black, excuse me, not only blacks were at risk and that they should have known that that, that career that career status imparted no reasonable disability risk. The blatantly racial nature of the screening was suggested when plaintiffs learned that the only white employee to have been tested for venereal disease was a white man married to a black woman. And um, it, it that reminded me because I remember way back, like I think it was in like the mid to late 90s, I remember that um, there was a company that ended up getting sued as well because they were doing, um, they did random blood testing on their employees. And what they found was they took some, all of the women specifically, they took their urine and gave them pregnancy tests unbeknownst to them. And every one of the females that were found to be pregnant somehow got terminated or, or laid off. And um, once they were able to, I guess, get together and compare notes, they ended up filing a lawsuit. I forget the whole details a long time ago, but this paragraph reminded me of that. And then the fact that they literally would only test a white man who was married to a black female as if she's some disease-carrying vermin and that he's this pure white dude when white people are the origin of just about every STD that has ever afflicted human beings and it came from their bestiality was just really interesting that they would um write something like that um or say something like that i should say she would say something like that um oh there was a, a brief uh, section on 319 that says nitro med the cambridge massachusetts biotechnology firm that developed vital claims that it is the first specifically tailored medication to treat congestive heart failure in an estimated 750,000 African, African-American patients. Clearly, vitals should be embraced and supported if it works to decrease death and disability due to CHF, but its marketing as an exclusively African-American genetic medication is just as clearly troubling for both scientific and social reasons. And I just think that um, when she talks about that, to me, 
most black people, if they hear about a drug like that, if they're really confused about the system, would think about white validation. First of all, you know, the holy heavenly white man has created this drug specifically for me to stop me from dying from congestive, congenitive heart failure, CHF. And on top of that, um, it would create confusion because, of course, they're going to think like the average black, <clears throat> black person thinks um, because of how we've been conditioned. Um, that white people are going to have their best interests when in reality they could be giving them a tainted drug that could facilitate some illness and then of course watch them die like they've done with all the other experiments that we've read about. And the last thing I wanted to touch on was uh, a brief paragraph from 322. It says, um, patent holder J. Cohn, MD, and his colleagues wrote papers positing a genetic mechanism for CHF in blacks, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry about that, a pathophysiology found primarily in black patients that may involve nitric oxide insufficiency, which makes the cause of their heart failure different from that of whites. Clyde Yancey agreed, saying heart failure in blacks is likely to be of a different, excuse me, be a different disease, and as the emerging field of genomic medicine has provided insight into potential mechanisms to explain racial variability in disease expression. To me, this is real, really like concrete proof that racism has changed black people on a genetic level. And obviously this heart failure issue is due to the pressure that we suffer under racism, white supremacy. So not only is it changing the brain as an epigenetics, but it's changing the whole human organism in ways that we are not aware of. And we're still learning as, you know, as uh, science and medicine progresses. So it's just a lot for us to think about as far as um, trying to replace the system with a system of justice ASAP. Thank you for taking my call and I'll meet my line. Sure. Uh, we have other folks that we have not heard from. If you have comments that you wanted to get in before the conclusion of the program, we have uh, a little over 15 minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, if you have commentary, anyone we haven't heard from? Everybody uh, with a hand up? satisfied I guess or just listening or what have you have you heard yes sir yes um well over the last couple of years during the compensatory forum we learned that um you know the hair samples are no longer a viable um, form of testing and uh, how many of the cases of people had to be um, released because of the hair sampling. And then we also learned that um, even though fingerprints are a good form, they've been doing it not using the right amount of points to um, convict people or, or put them in a position where they're facing a lot of time where they cop out to a lesser crime and they usually do that because they don't want to see that all-white jury. So I don't see no difference in the DNA testing um, being used in a criminal way. And um, they mentioned this guy earlier, um, Barry Sheck. Um, he's a DNA lawyer, you know. He he pretty much proved, because you know, the first time I ever heard of DNA testing was during the OJ trial. And um, this was 
you know, sold to us as this foolproof science. Um, and they did all this explaining how it works and everything. And um, Barachette, um he scrutinized every piece of DNA evidence collected um, by the police. I mean, every piece had a reasonable doubt attached to it. And it just shows me that it's not a foolproof science. Um, I mean, if you have a good lawyer that's willing to go all the way with it, every piece could be scrutinized. Um, so they're going to use this to lock up a lot more black people than they're going to free, definitely. And it's going to be um, not even doubted by black people because pretty much we feel as though DNA is the end-all, be-all. Um, whites never say what diseases that only they have. Like, they could talk about sickle cell or how much more black people are dying from this or that. But what, what diseases do only white people have? You know, I would love to know. Um, and lastly, I would say any drugs marketed to only black people, I would try to stay away from them um, because we already know under the system, anything they give to us would be a detriment to our health. And I'll mute my line. Right on, right on. Uh, any other folks that have commentary they want to get in? Uh, if we haven't heard from you, uh, we have said a little less than 15 minutes. Uh, if you have commentary you want to get in. folks uh, satisfied or again hopefully we will not have anyone waiting until the last minute uh, to decide that they want to be heard while we give folks a second uh, some of the comments uh, I, I think maybe this should have been said uh, the whole time uh, if anything would motivate encourage uh, black people black scholars to really take an interest uh, in science, hard science, uh, medicine, technology. This should be it. Um, certainly, we need more black doctors for a variety of reasons. I think one of the things that was touched on when they were talking about the Human Genome Project in terms of not including black people uh, in the study and then not even really having a lot of black people as scientists, I think that would be extremely helpful uh, just to being able to combat some of this. If we had uh, more black doctors, more black nurses, more black healthcare practitioners uh, so that we could help heal each other and not have to consistently turn uh, to racists for our problems, much like everything else. But certainly uh, I would think a book like this uh, would hopefully push folks in that direction. And again, getting younger people, um, you know, if you're, uh, I, I would take the position if you uh, have children that are over 16, certainly if they're, if they're going to be seniors this fall, I think they could read a book like this, or you can make it a family project over the summer, get the audio book, and listen to it. You can make, you know, it doesn't have to be where you do the whole thing in one day. We've taken, I don't know, at this point, two months uh, to read this. But, I mean, you could make it a summer project. And we're going to read this book. And this is why it's really important for you to do well in school. This is why we need black doctors, black scientists. Uh, why we need to be suspicious. Because black people have enemies. Those enemies are white. 
just to be very clear about that and the war that's being waged against us, all of us, all age doesn't matter. Children, older people, males, females, uh, high concentration of melanin. Racists are coming after you. That's it. Uh, some of the things that stood out in the text, uh, the second audio segment from this week. Um, let's see. I guess some of this goes back to chapter 12. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, Ross, he pointed out when they had the lawsuit where it was all of these black people and the one white guy who's married to a black female. Obviously, he's violating the code, so we're going to mistreat him, true. He can be thrown in as well if he's got the audacity to be married to this, you know, nigger woman. Um, where uh, I thought this segment was important, too, where she said currently black people are most likely to be subjected to such testing, uh, employment screening and the like, in large part because testing for sickle cell disease is the most common genetic screen used by employers and insurers. Again, I, and just in my opinion, I think that sort of thing is uh, deliberate. It's not accidental. Uh, I strongly suspect that the most uh, powerful whites, that was their intention all along. We're not going to use this for black people's benefit. And it's been so many things. I even uh, think that that was said about the Tuske uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment that, you know, when things started out that this had uh, benevolent purposes and this, we're going to help out some black people in Alabama. And then 40 years later, you know, this is one of the greatest atrocities, this side of Nazi Germany. Uh, that, I mean, it's unfortunate. And I think she's talked about that in the book, but I mean, that's just why we, you really have to have a high level uh, of suspicion and long range thinking, even something that might look like it will be good for the immediate future, that this will be something that's great uh, in terms of the next six months, the next seven months. You really have to keep in mind a lot of times, most of the time. Uh, the most powerful racists, they're going to have a 50 year plan, a 500 year plan uh, about how this is just going to have, you know, totally devastating impact uh, on you and, and probably a host of black people. Uh, and again, it's unfortunate, but that's just uh, that is the nature of the problem that we are confronting. Uh, the the whole section uh, about uh, this heart medication, uh, Bidel, Biddle, um Dorothy Roberts, once again, uh, she talked about this in great detail uh, in Fatal Invention. Uh, and this is another one where I think we've talked about uh, Negro complicity, uh, where you have a black person or a group of black people that might be involved uh, in some way in promoting or aiding uh, in these studies where uh, they worked with. Uh, I remember it from uh, Dorothy Roberts when she was on the program uh, where she said, I guess there was a conference uh, about all of this and she spoke up and she was saying, well, wait a minute, I have concerns because they really didn't do testing uh, to provide evidence that this is going to be something that's beneficial for black people. And she said it was other black people that jumped on like, hey, 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 what are you talking about? You're trying to harm black people. We, we got great medication is here and it's to help black people. We got all these black people suffering from hypertension. You know that, Dorothy Robinson. What are you doing up here talking? <laughs> and they hushed her. They shouted her all down and, you know, she's uh, super informed, but she reminds me of Dr. Wellsing in some respect. She's not someone that's going to get all rowdy and cursing you out and everything. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm all for everybody getting treatment. That is great. 
I'm just saying uh, they have not really done any testing. There's no evidence to support the claims that they're making, and I am suspicious. I am properly informed, and I am adequately suspicious. You're going to have to show me something, uh, because this is just not adding up with what you're saying. But she talks about that extensively uh, in Fatal uh, fatal Invention, and we talked about it back on the program, but it reminded me when they said that they, in 2003, NitroMed, when they got the Association of Black Cardiologists, as a highly visible participant and supporter <laughs> to promote this product. And, you know, that's another one. People can take their shots if you want to go and, and track down <clears throat> the uh, any of the members of the Association of Black Cardiologists and say, you know, good, you know, Coon, Uncle Tom, Sambos, and I uh, can't believe you did this. But I just taken the opinion and it seems it doesn't matter what time period we're talking about. If you want to go all the way back to the 19th century where there were black people that were helping uh, racist doctors to rob black graves and get them black corpses so they could do whatever uh, barbarous mutilations to these dead black people uh, with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment where you had nurse rivers uh, participating in this and happening on the campus of Tuskegee university, no less. Uh, and then this, this is 2003. This is not ancient history. Um, as long as the system of white supremacy exists, it's e- and even you can throw in the uh, prison experiments uh, that were happening at uh, happening at Holmesburg in Pennsylvania, where you had black assistants, some of them inmates, uh, where they were in charge there, uh, helping to organize uh, some of what's happening uh, with this research, quote unquote. Uh, it's easy uh, when you're in a position of power and you either can dangle a lot of money or sometimes a little bit of money uh, in front of people. Uh, or coerce them. If you don't do this, you're not going to be released from greater confinement. If you are in a uh, position of power and particularly if the people are confused, uh, if the victims of racism, if they don't have adequate information about what it means to be white, that there is a war being waged against us and what are correct things that I should be doing uh, to combat and neutralize this war. And Dr. Welsing, I'm sure she would say having black self respect that would compel me to make sure that I'm doing the right thing uh, by other victims of racism, other black people and doing all that I can to not cooperate with racist white supremacists. If you don't have those things in place, uh, it's just going to be real easy for you to, uh, just go along and yeah, no problem. Uh, <laughs> sign up for this, you know, we'll promote your Bidel, uh, experiment or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, interesting side note. I remember with the Bidel specifically, I remember Dorothy Roberts, uh, black people are not quite as crazy <laughs> as, uh, racists would have us believe. I remember she said that there were, uh, some black people who were saying exactly what Roz said that, you know, if you're going to be marketing some medication or drug or what have you, it's supposed to be exclusively for black people. I don't want it. <laughs> give me the one that, uh, give me the one that's for the white people. Cause I know what you all have done, uh, for some years. If you got something that's supposed to be exclusively for black people, I don't want that one at all. And she said that, uh, it, that seemed to be a, a common sentiment, uh, at the time when you went out and just talked to typical black folks uh, to gauge their thought that the uh, we might not know all the details. Everybody hasn't read medical apartheid, but it seems like uh, it was enough knowledge to know that there should be some suspicion that I'm not exactly ready to jump up and down and applaud uh, because they have done this. And it's supposed to be exclusively to make everything all good with black people. Uh, I will pause there. Uh, Anybody have anything they want to make sure they get in before uh, we get ready to wrap up or is everybody satisfied? The one person I don't give the pass to from this book, though, Gus, is that judge. Um, 
there's a mention of a black judge who they said he had so many cases backed up. He was known throughout the whole country, and they were all had to do with uh, malpractice cases to which black people were suing, I think, in particular, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And um, he, he held them up for so long that by the time they were seen, those cases were thrown out due to the length of time it exceeded, and the hospital was no longer liable. So that's one person, because he was in a position of power, he could have helped some people out, but he deliberately, you know, um, held things up. I, I can't pass him up. I'm sure it is no coincidence that he got to the bench uh, and he would be the one that would be uh, supposedly adjudicating that case. Uh, I'm sure that's not a coincidence at all that uh, racists had their hand uh, in him getting that him getting that job, that position uh, in the first place, allowing him to be there. And and again, uh, it's been my observation. Uh, if a judge is doing something that's incorrect uh, from what we've seen, all the controversy about the recent uh, Stanford case uh, where the judge, I just forgot his name. I'm a victim. Uh, but they felt that he did not do the correct thing in the Stanford rape case. And he let this little white miscreant off too lightly and didn't punish him harshly enough. Uh, white people intervened and they made sure that he did not sit on the bench for the next case uh, that came up for rape. That just happened. Uh, so that would be another one where in my book, at least whites would still be most to blame uh, because even if this black person is doing something incorrect, white people are the ones that are responsible for that. They could have stopped in immediately. And st- I'm sure white people were not ignorant that, Hey, this nigger on the bench is not seeing these cases. He is just letting this stuff pile up, you know, for years. And, and this is, you know, this is totally incorrect. This is not justice at all. We need to get him up out of here. White people have no problem firing and demoting uh, black people when you, me, the rest of us, I'm sure, can talk about uh, years of experience where white people have let us know that we were slacking on our job and we were going to be moving along. I'm sure they could have done the same thing to him if they wanted to, unless anyone here thinks that this, uh, Black, I forgot. I can get his name exactly. Unless anyone here thinks that you know he was above all that, and whites, he was untouchable. Racists just couldn't do anything to get him off the bench. No, I think he was definitely touchable. It's just that it, it just um, that one there is just like you know he could have seen these cases with poor black people. He, you know, it, it just like put him in a real bad position, and he knew what he was doing. And for that reason, even though it very well could have been. White people told him to do it, which is probably the case. And they put him there for that reason, which is true. But it's just a hard one right there, guys. I feel you. I believe. Uh, yep, we got it. It's. Uh, I can. I have time. I can get this in. I really prefer having the books as an iBook uh, because it's so much easier. Like just stuff like this, where you can just do a keyword search and you can pull up anything you want. You can make highlights. Uh, if you go from device to device, uh, at least if you have. Uh, Mac devices, if you go from Mac device to Mac device, uh, you have all of your highlights and everything is preserved, uh, all of your notes. It's just really a much easier experience. But, yeah, this is Judge George B. Daniels, a federal district court in Manhattan, uh, who is black. This We talked about this last week. It's in Chapter 11. Uh, was profiled by the New York Times in December of 2004 as the unchallenged king of delayed decisions with 289 civil cases, uh, civil case motions pending before 
for longer than six months, more than any other judge in the nation. By the time Brown was able to force a decision through a appellate court in November 2003, Isaac was 17 and Columbia was released as a defendant. As this book went to press, uh, Sharice Johnson was scheduled for late 2006. This is the case we talked about last week where we were not able to find anything. Uh, about this case and what happened to this family uh, where they just went in and decided they were going to do all these tests on these black children. We couldn't find any updated information. But, yeah, as I said, it seems like white people were not ignorant <laughs> about uh, Judge Daniels uh, and his uh, meandering on the bench uh, and not really uh, getting around to do his job uh, in adequate time. It seems like they were well informed about this and they chose not to do anything to the detriment of the black people in this case and probably some other black people who had cases filed. So, yeah, in my opinion, uh, I'm sure it's white people are most to blame for him getting that job in the first place. And I'm sure whites are most to blame for him staying there when he was not doing an adequate job in the first place. They would have been the ones who could have removed him. So uh, th- at least that would be the position I would take that white people would still be most to blame. But I I hear you. They're always uh, <laughs> I, I guess I would just insane. It seems like there's always a good reason uh, to not give black person to recognize them as a victim of racism. There always seems to be a good reason where we can. Uh, not give a pass to a black person. Hey, guys, you know it's so funny? Um, I used to be really hardcore about that, too, myself. And then as I developed a deeper understanding, I really eased back off of that a lot. Like, I, it's, it's just a, you just understand. I think it's hard for us to fathom just how how much we're under their control. And I think a lot of us fool ourselves, especially... And it's not, you know, VGQ, people can feel how they want, especially people, I think the people sometimes are the, have the most skewed views are the ones who feel that they're not victims at all. And it kind of reminds me of um, Harriet Tubman, you know, saying I could have freed so many other people if only they knew they were slaves. It's that same mentality. And, and we don't understand just how much our lives are orchestrated. Um, and that's what I'm really understanding on the deepest level and have come to the realization of... Um, in the last few years. But there's a section that I found to be very important. It's very short, um, but it's one paragraph on page 317. She says, this book uses the term race because it is accepted argot, a convenient, commonly used way of designating ethnic groups that are perceived as distinct. We all know what we mean or think we do when we denote someone's race as black or white. In our nation, race is inarguably important in discussions of health and disease. However, the Human Genome Project has erased any lingering doubts. Biological race does not exist because all humans share the same genes. Although the proportions of genes differ, many that, meaning that genetic differences exist, these variations map very poorly onto what we think of as races. This seems to introduce a logical contradiction. If race is not real, how can we speak of race-based therapeutics? The answer is that race is real, but it is not biological. It is social. What correlates very closely to, excuse me, to most racial differences in life expectancy, mortality, disease susceptibility, and survival is the race to which one is perceived as belonging. I just stretched that whole last section out and just put racism, white supremacy, because that's what dictates all of those things. And that's what I mean when I say we are under control in ways that we are not consciously aware of. And I think that's the most, the, the biggest ruse that has been pulled over the eyes of non-white people, black people most specifically, is that they have us fooled into thinking 
that they don't control our lives and all the areas of people activity in ways that we can't perceive. Thank you for taking my um, comment. Right on, right on. Great section, great section of the book, great spot to end, certainly, system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, if folks have comments, I know that's been a popular one throughout the book, uh, talking about, because uh, she had said at the beginning that that was going to be coming up regularly, uh, all the way down through the uh, conclusion of the book in terms of uh, Negro complicity, black people who were involved in these studies, if you you know want to offer uh, opinion. Uh, Judge Daniels, I think we talked about Nurse Rivers extensively way back. Are any of the other black people, uh, the American, uh, the uh, Association of Black Cardiologists or, you know, any of the other individuals or groups that we've discussed so far, feel free. You can drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com. Uh, I know a lot of folks listen to the archives. If you want to uh, participate again, I think we have three more sessions before we move on to Blood Brothers about uh, Minister Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. So if you have any uh, thoughts, if anything has stood out about the book that you want to share before we wrap up, uh, you can drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com and we'll read it on the air over the next three weeks Uh, with that. We will be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. We will catch up uh, on news observations from the past seven days. Uh, We will also be here on Sunday, Sunday early. Uh, We have uh, our guest. She has... uh, I'm ignorant. I'm a victim of racism. (laughs) I will have to take... I'm going to need like a couple hours to practice saying her name, but she is like drop-dead gorgeous uh, black female. She's in South Africa. She's been doing a lot of uh, protesting around the fees must fall, roads must fall. Uh, they had her on uh, the stream, uh, which is a program that comes on Al Jazeera, like, uh, I don't know, two, three times a week. Uh, but they had her on last week. They were talking about the uh, 40-year anniversary of the uh, Soweto student uprisings and relating that to what's been happening in the past few years uh, in South Africa with regards to protesting against racism, white supremacy. Uh, she should be with us on Sunday because of the massive time difference between here and South Africa. It'll be at 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Uh, 2 p.m. Central and 12 p.m. Pacific uh, Sunday afternoon, very early in the afternoon. But I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with her this Sunday uh, will be grand. Uh, they're even talking about the uh, Brexit uh, in South Africa as well, because I think South Africa is the uh, largest country that does trading uh, with Britain on the continent. So they've been talking about how that's going to impact their economy as well. But good uh, will be good to speak with her again. I always enjoy talking to folks from different parts of the globe about white supremacy. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, if you're confused, if you can't find something in the archives, uh, gripe, complaint, uh, feel free. You can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at until justice. You can use the Facebook pages as well. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal is in the top right corner. Uh, if you're not in the PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, again, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested down through the years. I hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. 
that said, I know it's it is official summertime. Uh, so if you're going to be out and about enjoying the sunshine and what have you, uh, I would just consistently encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, you do not want to be out and about frolicking and pretending behaving as though we are not still being subjected to war constantly. Uh, if you're going to be in an automobile, uh, I would say you do not want to be intoxicated. Uh, you do not want to make the job of the Darren Holtz, excuse me, Darren Wilson's Daniel Holtz clause of the world any easier than it already is to take your life, terrorize you, have you in greater confinement so they can have your DNA stored uh, for the next 50 years. Uh, if you're in a vehicle, you want to be sober. Uh, and that's regardless whether you're the driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian. Uh, if you are in a vehicle, I would certainly say make sure that you buckle up uh, and make sure if you do come in contact with enforcement officers, even your regular old white citizen, uh, you want to make sure you can make outstanding decisions so that we can keep ourselves as safe as possible under horrendous conditions, you and anybody else that you might be responsible for. Buckle up if you're in the vehicle. Say that again. Anything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.